Books, booze, and B-movies with your favorite tipsy cuties. Hello and welcome back, all you crazy pod people out there. Thank you so much for listening. Um, Here we are, another episode of Real Lit. Uh, We've got Sam here who, you know, teaches collegiate english and is about to take us on a fucking journey into the deep south and i'm katie your resident cinephile and i'm going to take you on another completely different journey into the deep (laughs) south and today we will be covering a streetcar named desire a la sam and i will be covering um everyone's favorite adam sandler flick the water boy all right so today we are covering the iconic uh unfortunately the uh very well-known sad depressing shit because that's what i'm here for i'm here to depress you so that katie can make everyone happy again um (laughs) we're covering a streetcar named desire by tennessee williams today so Let's uh, buckle up because just like lots of things that deal with classic lit in America, things that are about the deep South that are classic pieces of literature are often incredibly fucked up because it ain't happy. America's history, especially the history in the deep South is incredibly fucked up. Yeah. So, (laughs) So this is a streetcar named Desire by Tennessee Williams. This is a play, actually. Um, It is uh, a play written by, like I said, Tennessee Williams, who is considered one of the most critically acclaimed and uh, most iconic American uh, writers of our sort of genre of truly American literature, um, even though he mostly wrote plays. So A Streetcar Named Desire was first performed on Broadway on December 3rd, 1947. And it covers essentially the stories of some incredibly poor white people in New Orleans. So A Streetcar Named Desire was considered the most popular and the finest uh, and most critically acclaimed play of the 20th century. It still to this day ranks among Tennessee Williams's most performed plays and he wrote a shit ton of plays. Um, it's had many adaption, adaptations, excuse me, and most notably is probably the critically acclaimed film that was released in 1951, which is probably what a lot of people remember when they hear A Streetcar Named Desire. They probably hear uh, Marlon Brando screaming, Stella! Stella! And that's what we're covering today. So buckle up. This is A Streetcar Named Desire. So the plot of this is we are in a small town in Laurel, Mississippi. And that is where our main character begins her journey. However, the play itself only takes place in a like apartment area 
not necessarily just one apartment, but one apartment space, as well as the kind of like surrounding outside of the apartment building of a place in the French quarter of New Orleans. So it opens up, we see a guy who is clearly like a working guy. He's in some coveralls. He's hanging out with a friend. They're clearly off work. They're going to go do some bowling. There's some pretty typical American white burly dudes. And a woman leans out the window screaming for her husband. Her name is Stella. Her husband's name is Stanley. Stanley is like, hey, we're going bowling. Stella's like, can I come watch? And he's like, yeah, come on. And uh, Stella runs out to go uh, watch her husband play bowling. And as that happens, another woman comes walking up the street, sees the apartment building and is clearly very disturbed by what she sees. And she's dressed very much um, like she is used to the finer things in life. Like she would be uh, that time period's modern day Southern Belle. Yeah, when you see it in the play, it reminds you of, or it makes me think of like what people wear to the Kentucky Derby. She's like typically dressed very proper. She's got like, you know, she's wearing gloves. She's got the fancy hat. She's like full long skirt, like fancy outfit. And it's stuff that is actually like, she doesn't adorn herself with stuff that is like fake. You know, she is very much, she wears the finest that she can get her hands on for stuff. So she is coming in looking like a Southern Belle at a very cheap little uh, apartment building called Elysian Fields, which she clearly thought meant she was going to someplace spectacular and uh, is very struck by how not spectacular this apartment building is. This woman's name is Blanche, Blanche Dubois. So she is here to stay with her sister named Stella, the woman that we just met who went running to watch her husband play bowling. Right away, this draws a very clear distinction between the two sisters because Stella is um, a little younger. She is dressed and fits in very um, easily with the the setting and the environment of where we're at in the French Quarter in New Orleans. She, you know, she doesn't look dingy or dirty by any means, but she, you know, is very clearly meant to be in this area. She looks like she belongs there. And Blanche very clearly does not look like that. She looks exactly like where she came from, like she belongs unfortunately heading a huge plantation, right? And uh, sending all of her servants off to do her bidding. So when she comes, she asks a neighbor to go get her sister. Her sister comes back from watching her husband play bowling and welcomes Blanche in. We can tell really right away that Blanche is a very fanciful person. She's very nervous she's very sort of erratic and trying to pretend that she's not erratic her sister is very straightforward very down to earth and clearly loves her sister but is also very aware of the sort of theatrics that her sister clearly loves to sort of put on. And we can just see this in the the exchanges that they have here from the very beginning. So 
According to Blanche, she's taken a leave of absence from her job in uh, Mississippi. She is a teacher, an English teacher. She's taken a leave of absence, according to her, because of her nerves. And uh, as she's in the building, she, you know, laments about how shabby and sort of uh, poor looking this little two room flat is that her sister lives in. And eventually Stanley, who is Stella's husband, comes back from bowling. And Blanche also is very critical of Stanley. She believes Stanley is very loud, very rough. Uh, specifically, she describes him as a common man. Uh, and Stanley very obviously is one of those classic testosterone ruled American boys that uh, because he's very, he's quite young for uh, this sort of thing. As far as Stella is young, they're both young. This is a young marriage. And so he is that sort of quintessential manly man of, yeah, I go home, I go to work and I bring home the bacon and, you know, my wife treats me right and takes care of the house and, you know, takes care of me and gives me, you know, food and what's hers is mine and all of that type of uh, sort of traditional, quote unquote, um, quite patriarchal sort of ideas. He's very much like the embodiment of that. And he, just as much as Blanche is very unimpressed and sort of critical of Stanley, Stanley is very unimpressed and very critical of Blanche in turn. He believes that she's um, high-handed. He doesn't really uh, appreciate her uh, her presence in his house, particularly that it was A, a surprise, and B, that it's even sooner than what was planned, apparently, uh, according to the conversations. He, he can... He is very suspicious of Blanche from the get-go. He he has her number. He can't tell exactly what that number is yet, but he knows something's up, that there's something about her that is not what it appears to be and that she's very clearly putting on an act, putting on airs, so to speak. And he doesn't like that. He doesn't appreciate it. And he lets Stella know pretty plainly too that he can tell that and he's going to find out what it is. Uh, and Stella is very kind of forthright in response to him and her husband just in general about his sort of behavior. She's, she is very much back at him like, oh, you know, you're just being an asshole. You know, basically like, I really wish you would just not be an asshole. She's my sister. And he's basically just like, yeah, I am an asshole. And no, I'm not going to stop being an asshole because I know she's lying, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and this kind of sets the tone, in my opinion anyway, of the sort of like relationship that Stanley and Stella really have with each other because they're very affectionate. They're very quote unquote loving to each other. They're very frank with each other. It seems like neither of them lie to each other very much about anything. They, they're very open with each other. Stella is who she is. Stanley is who he is. And you can see this sort of back and forth between them that they believe at least works for them. So later on, uh, Stanley is talking to Blanche. He questions her about 
her earlier marriage because Blanche Dubois was once married. Dubois is actually her maiden name, which she went back to after uh, her husband, we learn, unfortunately died. She was married when she was very, very young, but um, very soon after they were married, her husband dies and she is widowed. So the memory of her, of her dead husband clearly makes Blanche very upset and uncomfortable. Um, and we can tell that there's a point of contention here that there's probably a whole lot more to this story that we just don't know yet. When Stanley is talking to Blanche, it, it comes out that one of Stanley's chief concerns here is he is upset because we've learned that Blanche is staying here, not only because she's taken a leave of absence and all of that stuff, but also because she's just so happened to have lost her and Stella's childhood home called Belle Reve, uh, which was a huge plantation. And apparently she's lost this entire property to creditors and uh, it is not theirs anymore. And Stanley is very suspicious about this story behind how she's lost this plantation. He feels almost that, you know, he kind of jumps on this as the first thing that would make logical sense to him of why she's sort of striking him the wrong way. Like, oh, she must clearly be lying about how she lost the house. And now he's, you know, angry as a typical masculine man who is in charge of his business and his household and his woman and her affairs that they've been cheated out of an inheritance here. So he demands that Blanche, you know, you know, show him all of the documents of what happened to Belle Reeve and how she lost to the plantation. And Blanche hands over all of these documents. She, you know, kind of makes a little bit of a theatrical performance about like ugh, how put upon she is that he would ever question her about it. But, you know, go ahead, look at all the papers, they're all there. And uh, so while Stanley is looking through this, Stanley notices um, a bunch of letters that Blanche accidentally kind of gave to him when she was handing him over this stuff. And this little bundle of letters, Blanche kind of quickly is like, oh, that's not anything to do with Belle Reeve and like snatches it away again, which Stanley just because of who he is, just does not like anyone snatching anything from him and is like, well, what the fuck is that? And it is according to Blanche, a bundle of letters that, uh, are apparently from her former husband, her dead husband, their love letters, according to her. And Stanley seems just kind of a little put off by this, like put off isn't the wrong word. He's sort of like taken aback by kind of how um, like sweet and almost very believable this is and kind of how believable her reaction is because it's kind of the first realness he's seen of her so it does kind of give him pause for a minute and he's kind of like okay sorry fine yeah here take the letters um afterwards uh when he's looked through all of these papers and he's kind of satisfied himself that okay well maybe she hasn't actually cheated us out of the inheritance maybe she did just lose it I'll find out why she lost it, but you know, uh, I'm satisfied on that front that it wasn't something nefarious at least. But afterwards he tells Blanche, uh, and he does this unbeknownst to Stella because Stella has, we've uh, 
it's been revealed in dialogue before now doesn't want her sister to know this yet but Stanley doesn't know that and Stanley is his own man in his own house so he's going to talk about whatever he damn well chooses and so he reveals in front of Blanche that Stella is having a baby so when he says this Blanche is very affected by this information she's very um excited but also sort of disturbed and it very kind of like subtly like shakes up a lot of what her sort of former composure was in terms of like her standing in this place in this you know apartment because she's staying here and as we've been learning more and more oh she's staying here because she's taking a leave of absence oh and she's taking a leave of absence because she you know had a bit of nerve trouble she had a bit of nerve trouble because she doesn't actually have a place to stay and so like she's homeless essentially and now she's learned that unbeknownst to her she's not just staying with her sister who's married but they're going to have a baby, you know, and that's going to add an entirely new person into this mix. And her presence here is, it just complicates that further. So it makes sense here that she's very clearly put into sort of mental upheaval (laughs) about this information. So the night after Blanche first comes, Stanley is having his poker night with his gang of guy friends because all men all have a gang of guy friends, obviously. Um, And they always, of course, all have poker nights or something. And at this poker game, what was, what they tried to do, they keep mentioning that, oh, the girls should not be around for the poker game. Uh, Women should just not be present at men's poker games. It's just not a good idea. And it's kind of like, why? You know, what, what do you, what is this sort of sentiment here? Which becomes unfortunately apparent uh, as you watch the scene unfold. First of all, Stanley, Stanley's poker game here is they're drunk. They've been drinking. You hear in their dialogue, they've been drinking all night, basically. And, you know, they're kind of heckling each other. They're doing typical guy shit, talking about typical guy stuff. Uh, And Stella and Blanche come home from their activities, which Stella had taken her sister out to, to try and stay away from the house while the poker game was going on. But she comes back, they both come back, and the poker game is still going on. And Stella's like, well, damn it. I thought it would have been done by now, basically. And it's not. So she can't very well just kind of like turn right back around and like go somewhere else, especially because Blanche, you can see, very obviously enjoys putting on a show in front of male strangers. Um, so she is very much, she puts on these airs of, this, you know, Southern lady who uh, finds all of this quite quaint and is very obviously above all of these sort of, um, you know, pedestrian type of lowly things like poker things and poker nights. And uh, I'm just sort of above all of you, but also this sort of air of like, oh, but I find you guys so interesting. I find you guys so endearing, you know, and she's attractive. So 
men find attractive women interesting. So even though Stanley is very much like, get out of here, like go in the other room, uh, you know, he doesn't want the girls there and he keeps telling everyone to stop interrupting the game. The guys are distracted now because Blanche and Stella are here and Blanche has to be the center of attention. So she's making this kind of big show and is like, oh, what are you guys doing? Oh, here, let me pour some drinks. Oh, let's turn on the radio. Oh, let's do this and let's do that. And Stanley, you know, over and over again, as everything is going on is just like, stop, everyone stop talking. Everyone stop interrupting. Fucking, let's fucking play the game. We've been on this hand for the last like 30 minutes now or something. But Blanche just keeps, uh, in particular, she is distracting one guy uh, named Mitch. She meets this uh, friend of Stanley's named Mitch. And Mitch is the only one of the bunch who is not attached to a woman who is not already married. He doesn't have a girlfriend even. He still lives with his mom. In fact, he, uh, he is taking care of his mother. We learn his mother is very sick and very ill and is probably going to die soon. And so he's like having a difficult time with that. He's, he's very clearly out of the group of guy friends, the odd one out. And Blanche kind of hones in on that immediately and kind of is like, oh, you're, you know, you're clearly different from the rest of these savage boys, you know, like you're, you're a man, you're, you're more refined. And she's sort of putting on these airs and sort of entrancing Mitch, um, who is very understandably entranced and is like, okay, this hot Southern Belle kind of woman is showing interest in me, uh, you know, a lowly kind of dude from the French Quarter of New Orleans. Like, hell yeah, I'm going to be into that, right? Especially when she's acting like, you know, not like misogynistically saying not like you know a bad kind of woman but like a woman who is respectable quote unquote uh but he he's clearly interested in that so they're they you know become very flirtatious become very friendly they clearly like each other and it just gets to the point where stanley has had enough of the interruptions and he's also had enough alcohol that he loses his temper immediately and violently so he suddenly just starts throwing things everywhere basically um the radio's been turned on and he gets up and he throws and breaks his radio and throws it out the window and he you know upends the card table and Stella who is upset at him doing this and is yelling at him to stop you know runs up to him and he shoves Stella and strikes her um you know and you know throws her to the ground basically and so all the guys get up now and are restraining Stanley and are like, oh, he's drunk. Oh, you know, get him into the tub. You know, get him, uh, get him, help him sober up. And Blanche is beside herself because she's just watched her younger sister get abused physically by her husband. And Stella is, let's remember, pregnant. So Blanche and Stella run to uh, the upstairs neighbor, Eunice, um, to get away from Stanley while the men are sort of like dunking him under a cold shower, basically. Uh, and they're like, all right, well, he'll, he'll be fine soon. And they just kind of like head out and they like take all the money that has been happening with the poker game and they just fucking leave basically. And, uh, 
when Stanley recovers from his sort of drunken rage, he is suddenly very, very different. And he realizes that Stella has left and is just inconsolable and sobbing. And he runs out uh, into the courtyard below. And this is the very iconic scene that everyone really remembers from the movie of him yelling up at her, Stella, Stella, I want my baby back. Uh, And eventually Stella does run down and return to him. And they both sort of um, very tragically and sadly um, come together and are crying and they you know embrace and then they go into uh back into their apartment together very obviously because they're probably going to have sex now so mitch and uh blanche are at the bottom of the stairs after this whole ordeal has happened uh mitch sort of apologizes for stanley's behavior blanche is just confused as fuck about all of this and kind of bewildered why Stella would go back to an abusive husband that, you know, abuses his pregnant wife, which is a great question. Um, So the next morning, Blanche kind of rushes in, finds Stella, you know, in her bed alone. Stanley's not there. uh, And Blanche rushes in and is just, oh, Stella, I was so worried. Oh my gosh. And Stella is very much fine now. And is just like, oh, Blanche, you know, you don't need to be so worried. And Blanche is very kind of put out by Stella's sort of acceptance of this. Uh, Blanche, you know, calls Stanley subhuman that, you know, he's basically Neanderthal. And Stella is very much like, Blanche, you just need to like get it through your head that like, I don't need your protection. I don't need your help. Uh, Stanley and I are fine. Uh, I'm not in a situation that I want to get out of. Uh, I want to be in this situation that I'm in, which is both quite disturbing and also quite, and I'm gonna get vilified for saying this, but also quite empowering of a thing for Stella to say here, because, it, you know, it is obviously an abusive situation. And Blanche is very understandably worried for her sister. And in a situation where many women, I think, would be sort of trying to convince themselves. Um, that things aren't as bad as they seem. The conversation that Stella and Blanche has isn't about that. Stella Stella doesn't try and dissuade Blanche on her ideas about trying to get Stella away from Stanley by trying to say like, oh, you know, he's never like this or, oh, you know, he's always, he's promises he's gonna change. That's not, that's not Stella's, defense here what Stella actually in fact says is this is who he is he's always been violent like this he's always liked to smash stuff and to be perfectly honest I kind of like it about him there's something about his personality and his brutishness that I enjoy and I'm 
perfectly fine with my relationship with him. And this is, I mean, this is for the time that we are in, you know, which is the 40s, this is a pretty empowering kind of take for a woman to have on her own relationship, particularly an abusive relationship. Yeah. Um, so, she, you know, Stella is really showing some, some womanly uh, empowered kind of feeling of like, no, I'm not a victim, you know, and I'm not a victim, not because I'm deluding myself into that. I'm not a victim. I'm not a victim because if I didn't want to be here, I wouldn't be here. If I wanted to leave, I'd leave. I don't want to leave. Um, I enjoy my relationship with my husband. And it's it's a very sort of defining conversation between Blanche and Stella uh, that I just find very interesting and kind of really sort of underlines Stella's character in like who she is and how different she is from lots of women, I would say, of her time, but in particular from her sister. Um, when they're having this discussion, in fact, and uh, Blanche is, you know, tearing Stanley's character up left and right, understandably, you know, calling him a brute, calling him a Neanderthal and all this stuff. And, you know, Stella is defending him and stuff. Actually, without their knowledge, Stanley comes up outside and he's overhearing the conversation, but he stays to listen to it rather than revealing himself until the conversation's over. And then he comes in like he hasn't just listened. And when he comes in, Stella actually makes a huge point of hugging him and kissing him and sort of very obviously trying to send a message to Blanche of, uh, you know, this is, this is not anything that I want to let go of. Like, yeah, this I'm works for me. I'm very happy where I am. Exactly. And Stanley, very understandably, uh, you know, when Stella does this, he is delighted and kind of gloats over, you know, Stella's shoulder as she's, you know, embracing him, looking at Blanche like, ha ha, bitch, you know, like, yeah, I'm a Neanderthal and I still got your sister, uh, which is just interesting on a lot of levels. So time is going on. Time is passing in this story. As this time passes, we see it through conversations between the characters um, that Blanche has been here. First, it was a couple days. Now it's been several weeks um, and things like that. In these convos, we learn through Stanley and Stella kind of talking to each other that Stanley has been like he had promised from the beginning, looking into Blanche's character, looking into Blanche's claims of the things that, you know, she used to do in Mississippi and how she ended up coming to visit them and how she ended up losing the plantation and yada, 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 and all that stuff. And he's hearing things that don't bode well, basically, is what you can understand from these sort of conversations. And as the, the weeks pass, and as Stanley's learning about all this, you know, he and Blanche's relationship with each other are, is very obviously just getting worse and worse and worse. Um, so Blanche has, we learn, put her uh, hopes and hung her hopes on 
snagging Mitch as a man who will she'll marry basically is what we learn. Blanche has set her sights on marrying Mitch. Uh, she wants to go and be with him so that she doesn't have to quote you know be Stella's problem anymore be anyone's problem anymore so she can leave this place with her brutish husband and her silly younger sister and you know not be a burden and you know be taken care of finally by a good man and as as sort of like shitty as all of the and you know dysfunctional as all of these relationships are like this is a great plan you know especially if Mitch is into it you know as long as it's consensual and Mitch likes her and she likes Mitch like great so you you know you as an audience member are like yeah this is a great way to try and fix this situation let's work on that you know let's root for them um they have a date at one point uh Blanche and Mitch and uh as they're back at the home after their date, um, they have some talks and Blanche actually uh, tells Mitch, um, we learn that she's been a little sort of reserved in terms of physicality, where most women in the French Quarter apparently now would have probably quote unquote put out for Mitch at this point. Blanche has kept her, uh, her, sexual uh relationship with him to a bare minimum and they've only like kissed like once or twice or something like that and uh we learn as they're kind of talking that Blanche is very she has a very um difficult relationship with with relationships and with romance and love because we finally learn here uh, more of the details of her marriage that she had when she was very young. So when she was married, uh, she was married to a young man named Alan Gray, and she was just smitten with him. She was very young. She was head over heels for him, and she thought that he was head over heels for her too, um, but she did notice that there was something about him that, you know, he was a very disturbed guy and that he there was something a matter with him that he just wouldn't ever, um, you know, confess to her. And then one day she discovers him actually in a sexual encounter with his male best friend. So essentially her, her husband has been using her as a beard basically, and that he, he's gay. He, actually loves, he is sexually attracted to men and not women. And when Blanche learns this, it is apparently the, the most evilest thing that he could have done to her to have, uh, to have deceived her in this way, because obviously homosexualism is depraved and disgusting which is lots of levels of fucked up, but that is Blanche's sort of initial response. And it doesn't, she doesn't seem to have like lost that, that opinion on the matter because she does mention it later as, you know, her husband being a depraved and disgusting man. So yeah, when she first learns about this, she yells at her husband like in the middle of like a dance or something like that. They're not like a ball or a gala or something. Some and rich people shit. Yeah, some rich people shit. Some white rich people shit. 
and she tells him that he disgusts her that uh you know he's an awful human who is disgusting and you know doesn't deserve life and he runs out and immediately shoots himself in the head after this encounter with her Uh, and and that is how her husband died and so we learn those awful details about her, her uh, former marriage. And this story really touches Mitch. And, you know, Mitch is very, very sympathetic to her clear, obvious, understandable struggles with the fucking fallout of this entire fiasco and how awful that would have been. And, uh, you know, loving the man but also being severely angry with him and then feeling you know like you're obviously the reason that he killed himself and just lots and lots of really sad shit um that touches Mitch and you know Mitch feels really close to her and you know comforts her thinks he he says specifically I feel like you and I need each other you know like you and I met each other at the right moments in our lives. And, and this is meant for us to be able to hold on to each other. And it's very sweet and sad. So later on, unfortunately, more time goes by. And uh, Stanley comes home one day finally from work and is in very high spirits because he reveals to Stella that he has finally kind of gotten the full the full lowdown on her sister and you know it's for sure and he it he's been able to corroborate the information that he knows um, with reputable sources enough that he feels comfortable knowing that the stuff that he knows about her is true. So he doesn't have any qualms now about talking about it. And so he tells Stella, this is who your sister really is. This is who she is after you left. That Blanche wasn't taking a leave of absence from her work. Uh, She didn't take a leave of absence because of her nerves. She was fired from her teaching job much longer ago than she told us. And she was fired from her teaching job because she was having a sexual relationship with one of her students, which is awful. Fucking gross. And because she teaches high school English, let's remember, you know, so like this, this boy is at the at oldest 16, probably, you yeah. know what I'm saying? And she's like 30. It's just not good. It's not good at all. There, there's no, there's no universe where this is great at all in any capacity. And not only this, but she, when she gets fired, she has lost Belle Reve at this point that we, like we know, but she, even before coming to stay with Stella, went and stayed at a hotel that was known for prostitution. And she stayed there for several months being a harlot. Oh, you know, shock and fear and the audacity of uh, just 
being very sexual as a woman, apparently, and having lots of sexual encounters with men. And apparently she was so depraved and so much of a well-known prostitute presence that the prostitution hotel kicked her out. And that is why she came to stay with her sister. Uh, yeah, it's just lots of rough stuff suddenly happens all at once in this play. <laughs> so yeah. Responding to my cousin's uh, facial expression of just, just. Oh yeah. Clear. No, the second act, when the it shoe drops crazy. in the second act, it's like, yeah. What the fuck? They, they pull no punches. It's they just don't like, at all. It's just like, anyway, every single aspect of this story is actually really shitty in every single way possibly imaginable. And here you go. Yeah. <sighs> So Stella, of course, absolutely hates this and at first is very angry at Stanley, doesn't want to hear it, but you can tell that's, that this also drives enough with who Blanche is and what Stella has also been thinking about herself that she does think it, it is probably a lot of it true. Um, she, however, is still mad at Stanley's cruelty and his his treatment of his her sister because she feels you know that that Blanche should have a little more sympathy, um, and she is especially pissed when Stanley reveals that uh, you know Blanche is probably not going to get that fairy tale marriage with Mitch like she wanted because he's told Mitch all of this information, and Stella is furious at this and it's like why the fuck did you do that and he's like. Mitch is one of my good friends. I would absolutely never forgive one of my good friends if that was me. And I was in that situation where that's the woman that I was thinking that I was going to marry or whatever. And that was actually who she was. I couldn't live with myself if I didn't tell him that. And Stella is very angry about this. Um, but we can't actually hear about the aftermath of exactly what Stella would have done in this situation because she very suddenly breaks her water and goes into labor. And uh, so she is now rushed off to the hospital and is in labor having a baby. So what happens when you're in stress? Yes. Late term <laughs> pregnancy in, or at a later point in your pregnancy and you go into stress, you are very stressed. Guess yeah. what? You could stress yourself into labor. Yeah. So she is uh, sent off, um, Blanche, we come to later a scene where Blanche is at home alone. Um, she's just waiting to hear what's happening with um, Stella, whether or not she's going to be okay, the baby's going to be okay. Um, she's been stood up at this point by Mitch uh, for one of their um, for one of their uh, dates, and Stella and Stanley didn't tell her any of this that they a that they know about it and b that mitch also knows about it um stanley kind of has this awful sort of like stand uh with her before uh stella went into labor where he kind of like mentions stuff that he's waiting to hear how blanche responds uh to hear that how much he knows basically um you know that she's just full of shit and she is very she kind of doubles down on the denial aspect basically of it, unfortunately. And um, so later after he stood her up, 
when she's at home alone, Mitch comes suddenly and he confronts her about all of the information that Stanley's given him. And at first, like I said, she is, uh, she doubles down on her denial, but eventually in the conversation, um, you know, the way she responds and starts kind of theatrically lamenting about how awful her life is, you know, concedes that, yeah, it's actually true. Um, and she pleads him for forgiveness and, you know, Mitch is angry and humiliated and rejects her um, and does not want to forgive her. So he leaves uh, and it's quite sad. So later on, uh, Stanley and Blanche are alone in the apartment now. Stanley comes back uh, because uh, from what he has learned, he is in good spirits that you know Stella's checked in to give birth she's in labor and everything is looking good right now so he is happy and he's drunk he's been drinking and Blanche is alone in the apartment and she has also been drinking um a lot <laughs> and uh she has at this point sort of started almost it, it's disturbing to see that she's almost creating like an alternate reality thing going on where she's talking to herself like one of her like old suitors, um, her old bows is coming to, um, to kind of take her away and sort of like sweep her off her feet because he's uh, she's learned stuff about him recently that he's like very wealthy. Uh, it's like some throwaway information that we learned throughout the the play that suddenly becomes very <laughs> important um, that this man that she used to know that used to be one of her boyfriends like suddenly became very rich very quickly and so she's like oh he's gonna take me away and we're gonna you know sail the seas together on a yacht and you know we're gonna live in Paris together and uh, crazy stuff and so Stanley kind of when he comes home lets her sort of um like hang out in this fantasy for a while, but then finally does um, kind of push back like he was before and a very angrily finally is just like, no, you know, no more of this. I'm fucking done with this. Uh, you're, you're a fucking fraud. None of what you say is true. You're a sad, pathetic woman, uh, you know, and it's just ridiculous how awful you are and how, you know, deluded you are. No one's fucking coming to save you. And, you know, look at you, you are Miss Prissy about me and how awful I am. Miss High and fucking Mighty now, you're, you're just as bad as me, if not worse. And in fact, you're so worse. Here's what I think you and I both know you've wanted to do this whole time. And he starts advancing on her. And she at first is very resistant and uh, threatens him. Like she takes a broken like beer bottle or something and uh, threatens him with it. Like she's gonna stab him. And he goes, okay, yeah, you wanna get feisty? Let's get feisty. And they kind of tussle for a minute where he very easily overpowers her, gets her to drop the, the bottle. And uh, then she just very, um, suddenly stops resisting and just um, almost collapses, not necessarily like she's unconscious, but kind of just like 
she just kind of goes, okay. She gives up. Yeah. And he carries her away to the bedroom. And uh, it is very obvious that the insinuation here is that he rapes her. Um, And I'm calling it rape because, you know, as willing or unwilling as you want to try and argue here about what she she was or wasn't wanting I could definitely understand and even hedgingly agree that there was a part of her that was very um that one of the biggest reasons that she was so angry and hated Stanley was because she was very angry that Stella had this man that was super fucking attractive uh, and that she, you know, in her sort of sense of morality and right and wrong and, uh, you know, what is good and moral and just in the world, she couldn't allow herself to want to have sex with a guy like Stanley Kowalski, uh, but he's fucking hot and attractive. And that was probably something that kind of fueled how much she hated him. But All of that aside, in this situation, she's drunk. I mean, he's drunk too, but she's very drunk. And she's also very emotional, very upset. Uh, He's just been very, very like mean to her, very bad to her. And she is very vocal and in in no way uh, happy with his advances. I mean, she tries to stab him. Uh, and threatens him and he has to you know make her release her weapon before she finally just gives up and just lets him have her way with her um and that's rape. he he rapes his sister-in-law basically. oh for sure and while uh, his wife is in the hospital giving birth yeah exactly his child his child mm-hmm So we open again, and this is the last scene of the play, and we have another poker night at the Kowalski apartment. And as the boys are playing, Stella and Eunice are seen, uh, Eunice is the upstairs neighbor, the one that she went and like stayed with for a minute when uh, Stanley beat her before. Um, so she and Eunice are packing and we see that they're packing Blanche's belongings. Blanche is off in the bath, apparently in the bathroom. Um, and we learn that essentially through Stella and Eunice's discussions here that Blanche has completely broken down mentally, um, is a little catatonic almost at this moment. And so she's having a bath, but that, um, essentially after getting raped by her brother-in-law, uh, has just had a complete psychotic break and Blanche has told, and Blanche has told Stella about Stanley's assault and Stella reveals in her discussion with Eunice that there was only two options for her when hearing this and one of them is, you know, believe her sister and therefore, you know, everything that is important to her that she just had a baby with this man that she loves is suddenly and violently ripped from her or believe that 
there's something mentally wrong with her sister and that it's not true. And that this is part of Blanche's, you know, uh, mental breakdown. It's a fantasy. And Stella has chosen the this, the latter, that and she very frankly says that there's there'd be no way I would be able to stay with Stanley if that experience was true. Um, so it can't be. It has to be that she has just suffered such an awful psychotic break that she is hallucinating and you know not in her right mind and making things up. So they have um they have set it up to where a doctor is going to come and take Blanche away to what is obviously a mental institution. Um, and they are kind of letting Blanche believe that what is really happening is, remember she was having that like fantasy about her old former boyfriend coming to take her away, that that's still happening and he's coming today. Um, so they're helping her pack all of her things and uh, you know he's on his way to get her. And so that's what they've been telling Blanche to kind of ease things. So um, yeah, it's, it's rough. And when the doctor shows up, uh, at first uh, a woman comes in like a matron, like a nurse basically. And Blanche very initially is like, no, this isn't right. You know, something is wrong and kind of is very confused and very resistant and uh, understandably scared as fuck uh, and physically is trying to resist. And so that the nurse is trying to sort of, uh, you know, physically restrain her so that she doesn't hurt herself basically or anyone else. And it's it's a very sad scene because we're at this poker night. So all the, the men are here, including Mitch. Mitch is here too. And Mitch in this kerfuffle actually stands up uh, and rushes like he's going to help Blanche, like he's going to, you know, um, comfort her. And Stanley has to jump up and kind of restrain him to let the nurses handle Blanche. And Mitch rips away from him and punches Stanley in the face uh, and then breaks down into sobs um, and sort of just like bends over the table and starts sobbing uncontrollably. And uh, the doctor comes in at all of this kerfuffle and then basically uh, just kind of gets Blanche's attention and very sort of um, like instantly changes the mood, treats her, you know, like a Southern lady and kind of gets Blanche's sort of normal attitude to kind of kick in. Like, you know, hello, miss, I'm here to escort you. I'm here to escort you to you know, the place that you're supposed to be going. Let's be vague, right? Yeah. And, you know, and Blanche is, you know, like, oh, you know, okay. And he's like, there you go. You know, that's right. We don't, we don't need, we don't need physicalness. Like she, she's going to be okay. You can let her go. And they let her go. And he's like, here, let me escort you, ma'am. And, you know, Blanche, you know, takes his arm basically. And, is like, yes, thank you. This is how a gentleman actually treats a lady. And he's like, absolutely, you know, right this way. And he leads her out this way and uh, puts her in the car and they take her away. And the last scene is uh, Stella on her porch with her baby in her arms, uh, sobbing now that her sister is gone. 
and uh, Stanley trying to comfort her and kissing her. Uh, and the poker game is continuing uh, in on the inside with his friends while Mitch is sobbing over the table. And that is the end of A Streetcar Named Desire. Yeah. <laughs> so I've never read the book, but I have seen the play mu musical play I don't know a friend of mine was in the pit orchestra for it and um I went and saw it to go really to support her because I don't didn't really have any interest in this a streetcar named desire um but saw it anyways and I remember very clearly the whole time just thinking what the fuck mm-hmm <laughs> and when it got out or when it ended and we walked out my first comment on the entire thing was I don't understand how this has had the longevity that it has had mm -hmm. like a lot of classic literature I don't understand the appeal <laughs> of it yeah. Like, I understand keeping literature around that is well written, that tells a great story with, you know, wonderful plot development and character development. Like, I get that. If you if you want to keep something around to teach values to kids or to teach even different styles of writings and types of writings to kids, like, okay, let's pick out the best of the best you know this is the best writing style first person third person whatever this yeah. is has wonderful character development like these are the things that you should be reading but I find that a lot of um let's say early 20th century like the mid half mid half of the 20th century 1900 to like 1960 yes all of the stuff that came, all of the quote unquote classic literature that came from that era in America, specifically in American writing. Yeah, it's the like the golden age of American literature, basically. It's downright depressing. And For I sure. don't understand why these stories have had the longevity that they've had. Like this story is literally like, woman ends up homeless goes to stay with sister brother-in-law is a mega douche rapes her sends her to a mental institution like how, why is that something that we need to be focusing on or teaching anybody about like this is not there there is one there is one character in this entire um play that one could argue is actually a redeemable person and that would be mitch <laughs> And I think Mitch, literally it. Mitch and Eunice are the only two characters that are worth anything in this entire like book yeah. story and neither one of them have more than like 10 minutes yeah. of time like in it Stella is garbage Blanche is also garbage They're, Stanley every single one of them the is three main mega garbage are all awful people yeah like i don't understand 
I mean, this book, I guess, is just like a roadmap of things that you shouldn't do. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like there's nothing in this, there's nothing in this story that any of the characters do that are like, yeah, that's an example that you should follow. Yeah. Like literally Blanche tells off her clearly gay husband so badly that he commits suicide. Like she basically murdered him. Mm-hmm. Then that causes a mental break and she starts fucking a child that she teaches like that's absurd that causes her like a whole bunch of shit to just go wrong in her life and she ends up on the doorstep of her sister who is in an abusive relationship and doesn't care that it's abusive and is like fuck it like i'm happy that he abuses me which is like Stockholm syndrome to the max. Like, get the fuck out of here. Stanley's just straight garbage the entire time. He has zero trusting bones in his body and is just like, oh no, something oh. wrong. I'm going to find it out. Yeah. I don't care who it hurts. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't matter that it's not affecting me right now. I'm going to make it affect me and I'm going to fuck this girl's life up. Right. And I'm going to fuck up my friend's life because he's clearly really happy with her, but who cares? Like, I'm going to fuck that situation up. I'm going to put my dick in everything. Like, <laughs> plant my flag in every I'll hole. I'll plant my flag can. in everything. Not just liter- not just figuratively, but literally. Like, yeah. I'm fucking both of these women. Like, it is just why? Like, what, what, what lessons are being learned here other than don't do any of the shit that these three main characters do. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, uh, for sure. This is, I think, probably the exact response that lots of listeners are currently having right now. Um, if you've never read it or watched it, and this is the first time, probably, yeah. And then if you have before, I've reminded you of your initial responses to it and you're having them all over again. Uh, and yeah, um, entirely valid responses. It's um, the, I think what is attributed to the the longevity of this and what has um, kind of surrounded it as being something that is not just a good story, not just a story that's written well, but has become so acclaimed as to be called one of the best American essential pieces of literature. Um, There are lots of things that go into that. Um, And actually that is what the rest of my notes are kind of about, is kind of about how this story that is so bad on so many levels ends up being heralded as a you know a classic that stands the test of time and is revered and espoused you know as amazing by people for generations uh, a lot of things go into it so we're going to get into um, some of that right now so now that we have finished the plot let's talk about how <laughs> this very tragic story has become such a staple um, and so iconic and so long heralded. Yes, please so, tell me all the um, ways. <laughs> well, so A Streetcar Named Desire uh, 
The original Broadway production was produced by Irene Mayer Selznick. It opened at the Schubert in New Haven in early November 1947. So this was the time period of when this was happening. Uh, remember that the stuff that we read in here and all of the attitudes, especially the sort of attitudes that Stanley has, um, were not necessarily the norm anymore in society. It was, we were sort of finally kind of understanding how fucked up some of Stanley Kowalski's like ideologies and philosophies are, but those were still very prevalent in much of the middle slash lower class societies. And so this was a very real sort of depiction of lower class relationships for the time period that it was being written in, uh, which is only one facet of why this becomes successful. The main reason that this becomes successful is because this is not a book, this is a play. If this was a book, I guarantee you it would not be as heralded as it is today. It would probably still be considered important literature in American history. Um, and there, it would probably have its proponents to argue how important it was, but it definitely wouldn't be heralded as one of the best of American literature that we have to offer without it being a play because the performance of the actors and actresses for these roles is essentially what makes this story. If you have people who are not good at acting, basically, to put it bluntly, then you're going to get essentially uh, the exact sort of reaction that you have just listening to it coming out of my mouth. Um, you're going to get people who go like, how is this a good story? All of this is awful. Everyone is trash. But when you have people who are very good at acting, portraying all of these very awful characters and giving them life in a way that is nuanced, in a way that you can see all of the good aspects of these characters side by side with their very awful aspects, it instills in the audience the the negative response becomes a negative that that fuels the liking of the story I know that sounds weird but it is a thing where you watch stories because of how upsetting they are because you want to remember how bad things are for people. You want to remember that so that you can either A, remind yourself how different things are now and be happy about how different things are, or B, remind yourself that this is still a reality and remind yourself why it's so important to push for change, why it's so important to fight against this type of stuff. And we are just in that cusp of American history in 1947 when this comes out, that people are absolutely ripe for that type of experience in art, of wanting to see the ugly of what is going on in America. Um, and not just America, I mean, this is shit that is, you know, prevalent for lots of people in this day and age across Western civilizations to be very sure um, around the globe. But 
we're very in that cusp of recognizing that some of these ways that we've been thinking about the world and about women and men and all of that stuff is awful. And we knew that we needed to change. We didn't know how to change yet though. And so kind of coming to grips with those experiences um, and kind of putting them center stage literally and saying, this is what life was like. No wonder we're so fucked up. You know what I'm saying? Lots of people that resonated with lots of people that showed everyone. It put um, in Hollywood the attitude that they still have today of this idea of not just that we're here to portray and entertain people, but we're also here to make important statements about the state of society, basically. And so that coupled with all of the choices that were made for the people to portray these incredibly hard, hard to portray characters, hard to relate to, hard to have sympathy for, all of those kinds of things, the people that they put in these roles cemented this story. So its original Broadway production, like I said, was early November of 1947 in New Haven at the Schubert. Jessica Tandy played Blanche. Marlon Brando played uh, Stanley Kowalski. Yeah, Marlon fucking Brando. And he's also the guy who plays Stanley in the movie. That is the man that you remember if you've ever watched that movie of the iconic scene where he's screaming, Stella! That's Marlon Brando. In fact, this is what launches Marlon Brando into his actual famed acting career. This is what put Marlon Brando on the map because in the hands of anyone else, Stanley Kowalski would have been in a completely unacceptable character. No one would have blinked an eye at whoever was playing it because no one would have cared because he was a brute that needed to be wiped off the face of the earth. But under Marlon Brando's very, very astute, nuanced portrayal. He's an incredible actor. He was able to bring a youngish naivety to Stanley Kowalski that fully believed in his own righteousness and his own like, you know, I, I get that I'm not good at, in some respects. I get that I'm a simple dude. I get that I'm not a fancy ass dude. And you know what? I'm okay with that because I love my wife. And yeah, yeah, I get really angry and stuff sometimes, but but I also love her and I provide for her and I, I do what's right by them. You know, I, I would never leave her and all, you know, like he has his own morals and his own moral code. And Marlon Brando took essentially what should be a very clear cut black and white villain and made him a very real human being. That unfortunately a lot of young and lower class men could very easily see themselves in and could also very easily recognize that how relatable, however relatable he is, he's clearly one of the villains of the story. He's not a good person. And that sort of character reflection, what it, what it kind of espoused in the responses of the audience members watching this 
uh, you know, we're in the 1940s still. So remember, primarily women would have been watching stuff like this, but men were primarily the people who had the distinct important opinions on art. And young men watching this would watch this and go, this is what's wrong with us. That, you know, we as men have to change. Too many of us are like this, you know? Uh, and then Jessica Tandy, of course, very, very beautifully portrays Blanche. Uh, also, we had Kim Hunter as Stella. We had Carl Malden as Mitch in the original one. Um, and Tennessee Williams himself really believed that casting Brando um, is what made essentially his play actually be a hit. And that if it had been anyone else, but if everyone else had stayed the same and it had not been Brando, it probably would not have taken off at all. Um, excuse me. Um, yeah. And so besides that, according to Williams, Brando launched this play and it, uh, Tandy, actually Jessica Tandy received a Tony award for best actress in a play in 1948 for this, uh, it closed, the original Broadway production closed after 855 performances in 1949. So that was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and since then, because of how incredible it was, it has just had oodles and oodles and oodles of adaptations and important adaptations, adaptations that lots of um, sort of marginalized groups of society uh, put on and sort of took to be able to kind of make their own sort of important standing in theater. There, uh, there have been numerous all black um, revivals of the show. The first all black production of Streetcar Named Desire um, was uh, I believe the Summer Theater Company uh, and it was in August of 1953. Uh, it was directed from uh, one of Tennessee Williams's former classmates, actually. Uh, and uh, it was then after that first black, all, all black revival, it like launched a bunch of all black and then cross gendered. So like gender bent productions of Streetcar in the mid 1950. I mean, so many, too many to like, if I listed it, we'd be here forever, all of the different um, productions. Uh, the first Broadway revival of the play, so they brought it back to Broadway, was in 1973. And uh, that was produced by the Lincoln Center. It starred Rosemary Harris as Blanche. It starred James Ferentino as Stanley and Patricia Connolly as Stella. Then there was a very highly publicized and acclaimed revival of this in 1992. And this production starred Alec Baldwin as Stanley and Jessica Lange as Blanche. Uh, powerhouse actors, actresses. And it was so successful and so um, very, happily and joyously uh, consumed that they filmed it for television. Uh, in the television version of it, 
they put John Goodman as Mitch and they put Diane Lane as Stella. Uh, and it was directed by Glenn Jordan. I think I've uh, seen that version actually. Yeah. Uh, so that uh, for their, it was originally on, it was originally actually on Broadway. Uh, it was a revival with Baldwin and Lange and just um, the Mitch and Stella actors slash actresses were different yeah. um, for the play production versus when they filmed it. And they all received uh, Emmy Award nominations and Lange actually won a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress in a Miniseries or TV Movie um, for it. And then Baldwin was nominated for Best Actor. He didn't win, but he was nominated. Uh, more notable showings here for uh, this play. Glenn Close starred in it in uh, 2002, a uh, production by Trevor Nunn. Uh, there was a production of A Streetcar Named Desire in September 5th uh, to October 17th in 2009. That starred Kate Blanchett and Joel Edgerton as Stanley and Robin McLeavy as Stella and Tim Richard as Mitch. There was a July 2009 until October 2009 production that starred Rachel Weisz and Ruth Wilson in it. Uh, and it was a revival in London's West End. It was directed by Rob Ashford. There was a uh, Young Vic production in London in 2014, closed in September 2014, directed by Benedict Andrews, and it starred Gillian Anderson, uh, Ben Foster. God, I love Ben Foster. Uh, Vanessa Kirby, Corey Johnson were in that. Um, it was the fastest selling show ever produced by the company Young Vic. Um, there was uh, the performance actually uh, that ended right before it ended a couple days um, before it ended in 2014. It was relayed live over 1000 cinemas in the UK. Um, it was part of what was called the National Theatre Live Project in the UK and it has been uh, thus far screened in over 2000 venues. And in 2016, uh, from April to June, 2016, it was reprised uh, at St. Anne's Warehouse in Brooklyn, New York City. And then in 2020, during uh, the lockdowns recently, it was released for free on YouTube as part of the, again, uh, National Theater at Home series. So, uh, I mean, in 1951, uh, Warner Brothers released that film adaptation that I mentioned. Um, yeah, it's a lot. It's just a lot. <laughs> um, I already covered that. I'd be really interested to see a modern movie version of Streetcar. Yeah. Like, remove the fact that this is set in the 40s, bring it forward 80 years you know, set it in the, the 19 or the 2020s. Yeah. And let's see this, how it plays out with, you know, how the abuse has changed, how the, the idea of this like toxic masculinity character that Stanley is, how that has changed, how the prissy like southern bell of blanche like how that has changed i mean you could remove it from the south completely and just put it in nowheresville usa and right. still tell the same story like the setting 
in the South isn't really important aside from the accents that the character, that the actors are giving it. But I think it would be really cool to see this done in a more modern way because it's just, I don't know, you'd have to change the story a bit because the story. For sure. Yeah, of course. Of course it has not aged as well. Like, right. I can't, I can't say for sure, but I would guess that in 2020, no woman has like berated her husband into suicide because he's gay. Like, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that's probably not a thing. In particular is much less relatable today than she would have been back then. She's far more relatable in the late 1940s and 1950s because that would have been, uh, you know, opinions and ideas that for women to have that would have been entirely reasonable and people would have not blinked an eye at that behavior from her would have been something that was acceptable uh and par for the course as a woman whereas today you hear her saying oh you know i fucking berated my husband so badly for being gay that he committed suicide and then i had sex with a you know a fucking teenager that i was teaching in high school and you know and then i tried to (laughs) like uh bait uh, some dude into marrying me so that he wouldn't find out that I was a prostitute for a while and, yeah. all, you know, find out that I was a pedophile and all of this stuff. Like, yeah, that type I of think it would have, would just not fly today. Yeah. <laughs> I think, in a, I think in a newer version, in a newer version, rather than her husband killing her himself, he just would have run away with his husband yeah. or whatever. Like they just would have gone on and lived. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I couldn't see them putting, like, I couldn't see the character of Blanche sleeping with a high school student and getting away with it, like, because that's not really a thing that happens. Don't do that anymore. I mean, it still happens, unfortunately, but getting away with it to the extent that she did, like just being let go from her job and then walking away, like that's not asked to let to to leave. Yeah, that's not a thing that happens. Like if someone finds out that you had sex with a student, you're going to jail, jail, like, sorry about it. So they'd have to like upgrade that, you know, she would have had to be teaching at a college or right. something and her student where, where the relationship was inappropriate, but not, nece- not obviously pedophilia, not, not yeah. highly illegal. Like the yes. kid would have to be legal, but like young 18, 19, and yes. she's 40 or so like, you'd have to jump her age a bit because the student's age would have to change. And I mean, you'd leave the prostitution in there because prostitution is still yeah. looked down on horribly, even though yeah. like people and are just trying to survive they, out here. Like, yeah. And I was going to say to, and today actually, you know, sex workers are actually trying to reclaim their sort of dignity. And oh, for well, sure. I, I completely, absolutely understand that because as long as you are someone who is choosing it and you're, you know, you're getting yours, you're trying to keep yourself as safe as possible. You're, you know, you're making the money that you need to make in order to survive in this world. Like, For sure. who fucking cares? Who you're For sure. The spin I put on it there is like, so Stanley figures out that she was a prostitute and tells everyone. And then rather than being like ashamed, like Blanche was and like, trying to pretend that it didn't happen and then eventually like giving up and being like oh yeah well I was this like that was a thing that happened 
Right. What would happen in a newer version or a modern version would be her owning it from the start. Like, yeah, I was like, who gives a fuck? Like, right. it's my body, my choice, bitch. Like, get the fuck out of here. I mean, it tells you everything you need to know. Like the, the description on the back of my copy of A Streetcar Named Desire um, says that uh, the story is the story of the immortal woman, uh, Blanche Dubois, the haggard and fragile Southern beauty whose pathetic last grasp at happiness is cruelly destroyed. Uh, and that uh, Stanley Kowalski was the crudely sensual brother-in-law who precipitated Blanche's tragedy. And her tragedy, like, oh no, she's had, not only was she married once before and then got widowed because that in and of itself is like, oh no, you're not a virgin. But then like, oh no, she was a prostitute. How will she ever fucking recover from this blow to her reputation? Yeah. It's just not something that would be a thing. Yeah. I think you'd have to change the like, the focal point of her downfall would have to change. Like it couldn't, it couldn't be the prostitution, of course, in today's day and age. It'd have to be like her drinking. Like yeah. she was an alcoholic. Then she came to stay with her sister and she was sober and Which has been sober forever. It's written, it's written in the play too, that she is very clearly an alcoholic. So yeah. it, that would be very easy to pivot to. Yeah. Her, so her. if you just made her like, oh, she was sober the whole time. And then Stanley rapes her. And she falls into a depression where she drinks herself stupid. Then she has to be taken away to like a rehab place rather than a mental institution. Like, yeah. And that in and of itself is something that just opens a whole new can of worms. Because as we all know, especially if there's people out here who shout out to uh, the poor people out there like me who are obsessed with watching dumb ghost, you know, hunting uh, shows like ghost adventures or whatnot. Like if you learn anything when you become interested in that kind of stuff, paranormal stuff, and uh, that, you know, the 1950s eras of mental hospitals, huh, huh, so bad. I mean, horrible. You, you got thrown in there for looking sideways at your husband too hard. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it was so bad. The patients were so mistreated most of the time in like every single one of them. And that's why they're all abandoned now and haunted as fucking. Well, I mean, we're just- Zach Bagans goes and makes millions of dollars fucking running around in the dark in them. We're just now like scratching the surface of everyone understanding that mental issues are- very common pretty much everybody has them and they aren't like the end all be all of your life like you just need to talk to someone you know get there are medications there are doctors who can help you it's not like oh inhibit your ability to live a regular life if everyone else just like lets you live a regular life you can live one Um, I don't know. I don't know how other countries handled have handled mental health in the past. I, I have no idea. I know that the United States of America has had a horrible track record with mental health. Um, just taking care of people's mental health or understanding that mental health is an issue that needs to be taken care of. Like if you go back and watch literally any horror movie from the last fucking 30 years it's all all of them 
almost all of them have like some little tidbit about a mental institution thrown into them. Like Freddy Krueger was born because his mom was raped in a mental institution. Um, Mike Myers, not Mike Myers, um, Jason. There you go. No, I was right. Mike Myers. Well, that was the right person. Yeah, Mike Myers. There it is. Like, is insane. He's a, he's a crazy child, and he murders his family. And then he gets thrown into a mental institution for decades, mm-hmm. where all he does is lift weights and dream about killing more fucking people. And then right. he gets out and kills more fucking people, like. Right that they do nothing for him they do nothing except like watch him through bars like he's an animal and oh name. yeah he has the fucking psychiatrist who's like quote-unquote working with him is really just studying him and waiting to see what the next fucking thing like bad thing he does is right. it wasn't it's it's horrible and it's throughout like modern relatively modern u.s history like everything in like one flew over the cuckoo's nest Mm. the shining like i could just name fucking all of it beautiful art things that have highly acclaimed art from the last century and half of it is like oh well everyone's fucking just crazy everyone's crazy send them to the mental institution and like shutter island like oh god as much as i love shutter island i love that movie and that movie is problematic as fuck yes (laughs) like i completely understand it yes anyway yeah all that is to say that is kind of what contributed to like the success of a streetcar named desire basically and that uh it it definitely it gives you sort of a canvas basically in terms of the characters like i said the fact that it is a play heavily contributed to its success because if it was just a book Uh, it would have been much harder for people to find the nuances, uh, you know, and these sort of important discussions that could be had about issues in American society um, that it was facilitated making easier by uh, being a play. Uh, And like I said, a lot, it won a ton of awards and it was nominated for even more. And I just have a little bit about Tennessee Williams here to kind of end off my notes. Um, So the writer of this was Tennessee Williams. He was born Thomas Lanier Williams III, uh, so prestigious. Uh, He was born March 26, 1911. He died February 25th in 1983. Excuse me. So long life. Long life. yeah, so that was his birth name. He's obviously known by his pen name, Tennessee Williams. Uh, and he's considered among the three foremost playwrights of the 20th century American drama uh, next to Eugene O'Neill and Arthur Miller, basically. Um, he has written, uh, of course, A Streetcar Named Desire. He wrote actually what began his success even before A Streetcar Named Desire was uh, The Glass Menagerie. Uh, And then he wrote Streetcar, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, uh, Sweet Bird of Youth, Night of the Iguana. Um, He's written a shit ton more (laughs) plays and one act plays even. Um, But those are kind of like the big powerhouses that he wrote um, that just kind of took America by storm basically. 
he was so successful and so important in American literature and uh, theater that in 1979, uh, just four years before he died, Williams was inducted into the American Theater Hall of Fame. Um, so he was uh, the uh, sibling of two other siblings. He had an older sister, Rose Isabel, and uh, she unfortunately only lived from 1909 to 1996. Uh, so she actually, I say so only, no, uh, she lived from 1909 to 1996. And then he had a younger brother, Walter Dakin, Dakin. Uh, and he actually lived from 1919 until 2008, Jesus. Um, <laughs> so he, some things that kind of just give a unique, beautiful, extra tinge of suck and sadness to some of the stuff that we've talked about for A Streetcar Named Desire here is um, when Williams was a young child, he actually nearly died um, from diphtheria. And he didn't, thankfully, but it left him very weak. And he was confined to his house for a really long, like, um, like recuperating period um, of about a year. So because, because of his illness, basically, like, I'm sure it wasn't just that, but probably mostly because of that fact, he was kind of less active as a kid. And his father was very, very toxically masculine. Cornelius Williams um, was a huge drunk and he was a huge abusive uh, father and husband. And he uh, hated the fact that his son was how, what he considered effeminate. Um, and uh, his wife, essentially um, stayed in the marriage just to try to take care of her uh, children, basically. Um, she did not love her husband by any means and was often abused by him, but she just tried to focus her attention on her children to um, kind of give them the best life that she possibly could. Uh, then he, uh, I mean, he goes to school. He. Um, he attended the University of Missouri in Columbia um, from 1929 to 1931. Uh, he was going and like doing journalism, but he was just kind of bored <laughs> with all of it. And he, you know, uh, according to him was just a girl chaser at that point in particular, he was just infatuated with a woman that did not love him back. And so he was just kind of like, eh, whatever, I fucking hate college and just started writing instead. Um, and he uh, then eventually had to go into um, a job specifically that his father forced him to do, and he hated this even more, so it kind of pushed him more into his hobby, quote-unquote, of writing, uh, and so he, he just kind of went to writing as his sort of ability to um, kind of let out all of his frustration with his life. But unfortunately, um, he just hated his life so much that by 24, he actually suffered an, a nervous breakdown. So he left his job and uh, he uh, then uh, had his parents, uh, he had his parents separate. They never divorced, but they just separated finally um, when he was, 
around that age. So then he went back to school. He went to the Washington University in St. Louis um, and he wrote more there. And then this is kind of where he just eventually starts his career. Um, we don't need to get too into like the details of how all that career goes. Um, but what is um, a really important thing to note about Tennessee Williams is that um, he was very, very um, sort of not enamored, I guess, uh, to put it sort of euphemistically with his success. He actually was a really important uh, writer that acknowledged how success actually does not lead to happiness in your life and in fact can often ruin young people. Uh, he wrote an essay that is titled A Streetcar Named Success that he published in the New York Times four days before a streetcar named Desire first opened on Broadway. And uh, it is all about essentially his, uh, how the glass menagerie made him famous and how that essentially ruined his life for a while because he had everything that he could have ever wanted and he knew that and he was still unhappy. And he, it made him come to grips with the fact that mental illness is not just something that, you know, you can schluff under the rug and it's not something that, you know, incapacitates humans that you should just be thrown into a mental institution for. It is something that is amorphous and kind of takes various shapes and forms and that he was severely depressed and that his success made him more depressed rather than helped him. He got everything he could have ever wanted. He was rich as fuck. Uh, you know, he wanted for nothing and he was miserable and he like writes about being miserable and about how he had to kind of like he I mean he even went through a period where it it ruined his relationships with other people that he was close to in his life because he started not really being able to even like accept their praise he started sort of hating um, praise and you know he could tell that that was sort of rude of him but he couldn't help it because to him it felt just fake um, and everything about success felt fake to him and uh, he eventually had to uh, like get away basically and spend he spends the rest of his life basically just traveling and living from place to place not very richly um, no matter how successful he was. At, towards the end of his career, he becomes less successful. But even then, but even before then, he would just spend his life kind of moving about. Um, he traveled widely during the late 1940s and 1950s. And he traveled with his partner named Frank Merlot because Tennessee Williams, much like Hans Christian Andersen, is the very unsung bicon of uh, some of our classic literature that we know and love today. Tennessee Williams was bisexual. He had desires for women, but he ultimately ended up with a man and was with that man for a good portion of his life. Um, they spent their summers in Europe. 
they moved often uh, outside of that. New York, New Orleans, uh, Key West, they lived in Rome and Barcelona and London for a while. Um, yeah. And then in 1963, unfortunately, Frank Merlo, his partner, died and he became super depressed. Uh, and so he actually uh, went in and out of um, like treatment facilities uh, for like drug addictions slash um, like alcoholism and things like that. Uh, and when he does finally die, um, it's February 25th in 1983, he was found dead. He's 71 years old and he was in his suite at the Hotel Elysee, New York. Uh, at first, the uh, chief medical examiner said, oh, he choked um, from inhaling a plastic cap off of a bottle, like the type of bottles used for like nasal spray or like, um, like eye drops. However, later on that year, the chief medical examiner amended their report and stated that while that plastic cap was found in his mouth, it probably was not his actual cause of death for choking on it. It was actually probably in his mouth because he was ingesting barbiturates and that he actually probably died uh, from either an intentional or an unintentional uh, toxic dose of secanol. So we don't know whether or not he killed himself. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, so that was Tennessee Williams and uh, pretty all around strange uh, tale, strange life, strange the way it ended, strange the way uh, he dealt with his success, strange even after he died. Um, for instance, his will um, stated that he wanted to be buried at sea uh, and quote, more specifically, I wish to be buried at sea at as close a possible point as the American poet Hart Crane died by choice in the sea. This would be ascertainable uh, this geographic point by the various books biographical upon his life and death. I wish to be sewn up in a canvas sack and dropped overboard as stated above as close as possible to where Hart Crane was given by himself to the great mother of life, which is the sea, the Caribbean specifically, if that fits the geography of his death, otherwise wherever fits it. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, that was what he wanted. Unfortunately, his brother um, Dakin uh, did not do that for him, which I kind of find unfortunate, you know, like honor his wishes. That's what he fucking wanted. Who cares if you don't understand or not? But yeah. um, his brother buried him uh, with their mother in Calvary Cemetery in St. Louis, Missouri. That is uh, Tennessee Williams's life. He wrote a shit ton of plays, like I said, even a shit ton more of one act plays. Um, but that wasn't all he wrote. He did write novels. He wrote screenplays and teleplays too. He wrote short stories, he even wrote poetry. He was just uh, an all around um, very interesting and important figure in American history. Um, he was a queer figure in American history that uh, lots of people don't talk about. And, uh, you know, quit your bi erasure uh bisexuals exist and they uh are awesome yeah quit queer erasure completely yeah. teach queer history that's really where we need to be yeah period just period. End of thought. period just like black history 
queer history and black history are both American history. So like crazy. Fucking teach it. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. So Tennessee Williams' life was depressing and Streetcar Named Desire was also depressing. You're welcome. So now we're going to switch it up. We're staying in the South, but we are going to talk about The Waterboy, which is a hilarious romp through Southern Louisiana. And it is Adam Sandler's take on being from the bayou. So yes. uh, I will preface this with saying, if you do not like Adam Sandler, and if you do not like sports movies, and if you do not like comedies in general, this is not going to be the movie for you. I'm going to yes. lay it all out there. Yeah. Um, this, this is peak Adam Sandler for sure. I was just going to say that this is peak Adam Sandler for sure. This movie came out in 1998, I believe, 97, 98. And this is after his huge successes that were Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore. You know, he had already made quite a bit of money and was known for being this huge funny guy. He was already done with SNL. Like he had launched himself into being a hilarious comedian in film. So this was really the peak of Adam Sandler hilarity. Um, This character was brought about by combining a couple of different characters that Adam Sandler had used on SNL, including Canteen Boy, who was this shy Boy Scout who used to get kind of sexually assaulted by Baldwin's scout leader. Oh, no. (laughs) That's a lot. (laughs) But he was very timid and shy, like just very reserved. And also by Cajun Man, who is Adam Sandler's character that he used to play on Weekend Update, where he would go and just spout gibberish that you couldn't understand at all and hold a conversation with whoever the Weekend Update anchor was. So he kind of took both of those personalities, the hard to understand Cajun sounding language and the shy timid boy basically and put them together and created this character of Bobby Boucher. Now Bobby Boucher works as the water boy for the University of Louisiana football team. They are a huge accomplished football team. They've won several national titles. The in the very opening scene the coach is talking about adding another ring to his collection, adding another trophy to their giant trophy case. Like he's ready. They're expecting to win, to be great practice. It's the first practice of the season. It starts, everything's going. Okay. Then Bobby Boucher comes out onto the field and he's setting up his little table full of things for that. The water boy takes care of, you know, he's got his like boiling station where he, um, takes care of the water and he's got his cooling station. He's got all his cups lined up, like everything's ready to go. He's taking care of his stuff. Now, football players from the team have zero respect for Bobby Boucher. What they see is a grown man who has this like weird childlike demeanor and Mm -hmm. is an easy target to pick on. 
So these college football guys come over and they just start picking on him. One of them is spraying him with water. They're like doing all this dumb shit. They're just super assholes to him. Mm -hmm. And when this one character, this one football player spits in his water jug, the big container that has all the clean water in it, he is taken back to this memory of him when he started working at the University of Louisiana as a child. He was like eight or nine. And another football player had done this to him. And he tried to hit this player on the back of the head with like a ladle. He was a kid and he was upset that someone had like disrespected his water jug and was going to hit this kid or hit this player with a ladle. And the coach is like, stops him, sees what's happening, grabs the thing and is like, no, 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 you cannot hit my finely, finely tuned athletic machines. Like you're just the water boy. No. Mm -hmm. And he just goes on about his day. Flash forward to the present. And he is just stunned that this new college football player is doing the exact same thing to him. He's like, what the fuck? Now the coach sees all these players who have now started to circle around his little watering table, picking on him and treating him like shit. And the coach is like, I thought I told you to fire that guy. Like what the fuck? You know, the assistant coach is like, uh, I thought you were kidding. Like he does a great job as the water boy. Like, why would I fire him? Like he's, he's fine. He, he does his job. That's all we need him to do. Right. And the coach red bow you is like, he does a great job at distracting my players and he yells, Hey, water boy, you're fired. And then that's it. Bobby has to leave. So Bobby gets on his tractor. He has a little riding mower and <laughs> rides to his mama's house where he lives um, deep on the bayou and is trying to figure out what to do with his life. He's, you know, he just lost his job that he's clearly had for like 20 years. And he's talking to his mom, like, you know, I lost my job and maybe I'll go out, I'll find another water boy job, water boy position. And his mom played by Kathy Bates. She's fucking fantastic in this movie um, is just like, you don't need a job. You don't, you don't need those foosball players. Like they're dumb and they're mean to you and you don't need this and you don't need that. Like, Just stay here with your mama and everything will be all right. She is very possessive of Bobby throughout this movie. She, we find out later why, but she just is very protective of her, her son who seems to be at this point in the movie slow Now he is not, he doesn't have like, you can't see anything physically wrong with him. There's, you know, there's no signs to anything, anything serious that would have happened like, you know, pre-birth, but he does seem to just be behind a bit. He's a 31 year old man and he is very innocent and childlike. Right. So he goes to bed. And he's laying in bed and he's watching his favorite thing on TV, which was the same as me in 1998. Like he's watching fucking wrestling like you do. Hey, (laughs) 
you know, a little, little teenage or young teen Katie was like all about it. And he is watching his favorite wrestler of all time, Captain Insano, um, get ready for this big match. And he, they're on like this, um, kind of interview talk show situation, but you can call in. So Bobby calls in and asks Captain Insano, do you need a professional water boy? Like I'm a, I am a professional water boy. Like, do you, do you need someone to take care? You look dehydrated when you wrestle. (laughs) And Captain Insano, who is played by at the time was the giant, but is now currently the big show in WWE. Oh, that's right. That's right. Oh my God. I totally forgot about this. Kind of giggles and is like, that's cute kid. Like, how old are you? Cause he assumes it's a little boy because like only a little kid would ask their that favorite wrestler. Like, Do you, you know, can I help? Like, can I be part of your job? And you know, Bobby of course responds and he's like, I'm 31 years old and captain Insano loses it and he fucking just starts laughing because he bobby just asked him if he needed a water boy like that's not typically the job of a grown man so bobby's just crestfallen and he hangs up the phone he goes to sleep next day wakes up gets on his tractor and goes out and decides okay i'm gonna go look for another job he goes to the nearest university to his house which is the SCLSU school, which stands for South Central Louisiana State University. <laughs> it's like the most ridiculous school title Boop that they could have chosen. Yeah. So he goes to the school and he finds the office of Coach Klein. Coach Klein is the head football coach, of course, of SCLSU, and he sits down to ask if he can be the water boy. You know, he's like, I'm wondering if your team needs a professional water boy, like I do this and do this and do that. And when he walks into the office, Coach Klein is re-watching some tapes of his team and pointing out all of the horrible spots in the tape, like here's where we fumbled and here's where they ran the ball 90 yards and we just couldn't catch up. And, you know, something is off about coach Klein. We see it right in the very beginning. Like you're kind of troubled and you're not really like giving us everything. Like something's wrong there. Then the tape finishes and he notices Bobby's presence and he starts talking to Bobby and he has this, like his face lights up and he's like, come here, come here, come here, come here. And he takes him over to the chalkboard and he starts writing a play and he gets halfway through writing the play and then just like freaks out, checks out completely mentally. And he's like, I don't know where I am. What is going on? And he's like panicking, essentially having a panic attack. Yeah. Bobby sits him down, whips out his little like retractable cup, pulls out a thing of water that he had brought clearly a sample so that he could convince the person to hire him. Right. Look at how good I am at giving you water. Brings it, you know, pours him a little cup of it and has him drink the water. He says, Oh, this is good. This is really good water, much better than what I serve the boys. And he's like, what do you serve the team? 
and Coach Klein looks over to this like shitty, I guess, water fountain. I don't know. It looks like a trash can and it's like covered in cigarette butts and like cockroaches. Basically every single water fountain that you had to deal with growing up at uh, your fucking public school or whatever, you know? Yeah. It's like the grossest public park, like water fountain you've ever seen in your life. And (laughs) coach Klein basically says, I can't hire you. I can't hire anybody. Like our team sucks. I don't have the money to, to hire you. And Bobby's like, I will work for free as long as you promise me that you never serve that disgusting water to anyone ever again. <laughs> and Coach Klein is like, done. Deal. Sold, sir. <laughs> Deal. Like, show up tomorrow. Like, we're good. Like, I will never serve that to anybody. So Bobby comes back the next day for practice and he gets his stuff all set up. He turns on his little fire thing that you use for like um, catering. I can't remember what that, what those little fire things are called, but he turns that on and he's heating his water and he's, you know, setting out his cups. He's getting his whole station ready, his water station ready. And Derek, who is the team's kicker comes up and he's like, Hey man, you know, water's better cold, not hot. Cause he's like, why the fuck are you boiling this water? And then Bobby kind of stutters through the explanation of why you need to heat water before you can consume it and explains, you know, my mama always said better safe than sorry. And Derek says, you know, my mama says that too. Aren't all mamas just the same? And they like become quick friends. And then Derek goes out to play and Bobby's just like chilling there, taking care of his water. Now the rest of the team are assholes, just like the other team was. And the quarterback who is played by an actor who shows up in all of Adam Sandler's movies, you will see half of this cast is the same cast that is in every other Adam Sandler film because that's what he does. Hire your friends. The quarterback is like, hey, take a look at the new water boy. Let's give him a proper welcome. Tommy, you go left. Billy, you go way left. And he purposefully throws a ball so that the runner runs into his whole table setup. Oh no. And you know, ruins everything that Bobby's been working on. But Bobby, who has been at the University of Louisiana, like he's kind of used to this. He's like, it's okay, man. Like, go. I, I, I understand. I understand. Yeah. He's like, uh, I think you zigged when you should have zagged, is what he says. And it's fucking hilarious. It's so cute. But the football player gets up and is just like, man, fuck you, basically, and walks away. You know, it's off to a bad start for Bobby at SCLSU. The team's kind of treating him like shit, but he's used to it. He, you know, he's not really thinking anything of it. Coach Klein comes over to Bobby and is like, hey, man, like, you've got to stand up for yourself. You can't just let them treat you like shit or they're going to walk all over you all season. Like, you have to stand up for yourself. you got to do something. And Bobby's like, well, but they are football players. Like, I can't hurt them. They're finely tuned athletic machines. You know, he has this ingrained in his head from his last job that he can't do anything. And Coach Klein's like, nah, dude, like, you cannot let them just continually shit on you. They'll be fine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So he tells Bobby, like, you need to do something. Like, treat him like you should because he just, like, fucked you over, basically. Right. And this was anyone else. If this was some normal fucking person, just like being an asshole to you on the street, what would they fucking get for treating you like this? And Bobby is like, okay, like 
are you sure that it's okay? He, you know, he's making sure he wants to make sure he's not going to get in trouble or fired or whatever. So the guy's kind of just standing there. The football guy who fucked with him is just standing there and still kind of egging him on. Like, I don't care if you do what you do say, your worst. Is not the iconic movie. scene that happens at some point within the last 10 minutes, I feel like is the iconic water sucks. That's it at the end of the movie. Sucks. That's at the end of the at movie. the end? Oh, yeah. damn it. It's been t- so long since I fucking watched this yeah. movie. I could never remember when that was. I was like, all I know is at some point in this movie, yeah. this song happens. So, and it's been in my head for 20 something years. So Coach Klein is kind of, you know, egging him on. Like, you need to get your respect, do whatever you got to do. And he's like, is there any sport that you do watch? Because he, you know, he tries to communicate with him through football, but football's not Bobby's thing. And he's like, Oh, well, I really like wrestling. Who's your favorite wrestler? Captain Insano. Okay. Well, what does Captain Insano do when someone treats him wrong? And Bobby says, Oh, well, he opens up a can of whoop ass and coach Klein's like, okay, well open up a can of whoop ass on this guy who just like fucked up your thing. Mm -hmm. Right. So Bobby thinks about what Captain Insano would do and then rushes this guy and tackles him with one of the hardest tackles that has ever been seen ever and coach Klein's like holy shit okay like can you do that on you didn't tell me you were an actual football player like I didn't know you could do that like (laughs) I want you on the team and Bobby's just like I can't play football I've never played football before my mama won't let me play football like there's no way and coach Klein's like that's okay me and you are gonna go and we're gonna have a talk with mama we're gonna figure it out we're gonna get you on the team right So they go to Bobby's house or Bobby's mama's house and they sit down for dinner and it's real awkward, like deep South meal happens. They're literally eating a fucking snake. Oh my God. (laughs) And coach Klein played by Henry Winkler is trying to convince mama. Oh my God. I've been trying this entire time because I was like, I know this guy and I can I can all I could almost see his face, but I couldn't yeah. quite see it. And I'm like, but this guy, this guy's an important guy. I remember yes. thinking Henry Winkler. It's fucking Henry Winkler. Okay. Yes. Thank you for helping me. That was bugging the shit out of my brain. Okay. Yeah. So Coach Klein is discussing with mama, like trying to convince her to let Bobby play football. Like, you know, all of these things would have, you know, Bobby would get to do this and he'd get to do that. He'd get to go to school at SCLSU. And Bobby is like, wait, what me, a college boy? Like I could get to go to school. He's like, like, I want to do that. Mama, let me do that. And the mom's like, no, you're too fragile to be playing with all those behemoths. Like they're just Neanderthals and they're going to hurt my precious baby. And you're not going to play. And then she says, ow, and says she hurt her head Oh no! and she leaves. She's like, I'm going to bed. Come into my room when when coach Klein is gone and I'll brush your hair and Bobby's like it's the brain pains coach like sometimes she gets the brain pains and coach Klein's like okay well okay but here's the thing here's the thing when I was a kid my mom told me not to get a tattoo of Roy Orbison but what mama don't know won't hurt her and then he pulls down his pants to show off a tattoo of roy orbison on his ass oh my and God. then bobby's just like what the 
fuck? fuck? Yes. And then Coach Klein leaves. <laughs> Bobby goes to sleep. If there was any question whether or not Katie and I were sisters or not, we were very instantaneously same exact response. Yeah. So the next day, Bobby shows up for work and he decides, okay, well, what mama don't know won't hurt her. I'm going to play football and I'll just keep it a secret. So he gets dressed. He comes out on the field. He doesn't have a helmet. And Derek, the kicker, comes up to him and is like, hey, man, where's your helmet? And he's like, oh, well, they're out. You guys don't have any more because this school is like super shitty, super duper duper shitty. So Derek's like, okay, well, we can share mine. So they share oh. Derek's special teams. He doesn't need it all the time. Right. Yeah, say, fine. When, when often besides in the last, in the last five years, literally, I mean, not in their time, but in our time, when would the kicker ever fucking like get in a situation where they would actually need their helmet back yeah. then? Like we could tackle, were, but not, yeah, not very, in, very, not very, very rarely. That. Kickers were not jumping into piles and shit like that and doing all them trick plays. Yeah. So Bobby gets out on the field and the coach is like, okay, well, we're going to get here. You're going to stand here. It's third and 10 and go. And just starts to walk. And Bobby's like third and 10. And then coach has to explain what third and 10 is. And then you're going to do this. And Bobby doesn't understand what to do. Like, cause he does, has not watched football. He's been in, at a football field the whole time, but he has been focused on the water and all the rest of the team are just like, fuck, like, why? Like, are you kidding me? Like, he doesn't know anything. This is going to be stupid. So coach Klein pulls him aside and pulls another player on the defensive line off and is like, okay, well, what you did yesterday, I want you to do the same thing to him right now. Um, pretend that he has been doing something bad to you. Treat him exactly like Captain Insano would. And Bobby like pokes him in the eyes, like fucking Three Stooges style. Oh my God. <laughs> it's just like, what the fuck? <laughs> because that's some pro wrestling shit. Like that's some dumb shit. You sure, that's some like, wrestling. ref's not looking, I'm going to knee you in the nuts type of shit. Exactly. Like, for sure. And the coach is like, no, 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 no. You're misunderstanding me. Um, I want you to think of someone who has wronged you, someone being mean to you and visualize them being in front of you and then visualize an attack, just visualize an attack. And then Bobby thinks to his mother from the night before talking about how football is the devil and all these things. And he runs at this dude and lays him out. Like, dude is just fucking knocked out. And then Bobby feels bad, of course, because he tackled his mama, but he's okay with it. He's like, it's fine. So (laughs) now there's like this montage of Bobby figuring out football. And then Bobby goes to school. And this is one of my favorite scenes in all of cinema that exists because it's so stupid but bobby goes to biology which would be fine if you were a normal kid but bobby is 31 so even if he went to normal school he hasn't been in school in 13 years at this point at least so he goes to this college level biology course and they're talking about alligators and why they are overly aggressive like what makes alligators overly aggressive 
The teacher, who looks like Colonel Sanders, asks the class, why are alligators overly aggressive? And nobody says anything, but Bobby raises his hand. He's like, oh, I know the answer to this. So he raises his hand and he's like, my mama says alligators are ornery because they got all them teeth and no toothbrush. And everyone in the class kind of chuckles. And <laughs> and Colonel Sanders is like, I love this. He repeats it and he's like, Are you fucking kidding me? Basically, he doesn't say that, but he laughs and you know, repeats it and is like, actually, that's not right. And another student you know, answers, you know, alligators are overly aggressive because they have an enlarged uh, medulla oblongata, like their brainstem basically is overly large. And the guy's like, correct. That's, you know, that's right. And they go on. And then he asks another question and Bobby answers it again. And then the teacher says, well, mama's wrong again. And he continues on with the lesson and Bobby gets really upset. And he's like, Oh, no, Colonel Sanders, you're Don't wrong. Talking about my and, mouth. Don't be talking. And about he stands mouth. up and he runs down the steps in this classroom and tackles Colonel Sanders. <laughs> and, he, yeah. and all the football players that are in the class run and pull Bobby off. I'm like, ah, Bobby, And Bobby's just like, no, it's okay, it's okay. Coach Klein said I could. It's fine. Oh because, no! You know, at this point, Bobby has learned that right. you, when someone wrongs you, you can hurt them. Right. Then we get a montage of football games um, where Bobby is the breakout star, basically, of this football team. The first team that they play, they lose to because Bobby makes a dumb mistake, but he ends up like drop kicking the guy at the end in the end zone. It's just like a montage reel of Adam Sandler just dilapidating other football players on the field. It's pretty fucking great. So they lose the first game. Everyone's mad at him because of the stupid mistake he made that made them lose the first game. And we find out that their record at the time of that loss is 0 and 41. Oh, Jesus. They have lost 41 straight games, which for those of you not aware of college football that's that's a lot that's almost four full seasons of losing straight like (laughs) that's horrible like so that's why they don't have the right equipment like all the cheerleaders are just drunk all the time like they're not cheering they're just fucked up there's like zero fans in the stands why bother yeah why bother you know it goes into the next game and bobby just destroys like they win the game. Hooray. They finally won. Then they go to a party. Like the whole football team is like, holy shit, we won a game. Like, let's celebrate. Let's have a party. And he goes to the party and, you know, he's trying to make friends with everybody and everyone's becoming more and more accepting of Bobby. And Colonel Sanders is there, his teacher. And he's like, oh, are we still having that test tomorrow? And he's like, yeah, if it's all right with mama. And he like runs away because his arm is like fucking broken. And he's got a black eye from when Bobby tackled him. Like he's super fucked up. So we get more football montages as we go through the season, different games that they've won, different injuries that Bobby has like come away with from the football games. Like he has a black eye at one point. He's got a big cut on his head. And we see in this montage, he's like, mimicking to his mom like oh a gorilla like escaped from the zoo 
and like punched me in the eye or a gorilla like swatted me and that, like that same gorilla that escaped from the zoo like swatted me in the face and I got hit and that's why so his mom's like putting up fucking signs for a gorilla like wanted gorilla reward <laughs> because of this elaborate gorilla lie that Bobby has told it's so good we also meet in this middle chunk of the movie we meet the love interest of Bobby Boucher. And that would be Vicky Valancourt, played by the wonderful Feruza Bulk. She plays this hardened woman who is very open in her like sexual desire. She's not afraid to show like, oh, hey, I clearly I want you. But also she's like been to jail a bunch. She's like super shady. She like carries a knife on her like she like holds a knife to a guy's throat at one point in this movie like (laughs) she's super hard hardcore and she's super into astrology so bobby brings her over to the house for a date and you know she's kind of talk they have like a picnic and she's discussing with the mom talking to bobby about you know astrology or whatever and mom is just like i don't believe in any of that shit like you're not good enough for my bobby and blah 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 you know the same shit she's been on the whole the whole movie right And mom is trying to disrupt this relationship. She's trying to bring up anything that might deter Vicky Valancourt from being into Bobby. She's like, did you know that he wears, you know, deputy dog pajamas? Did you know that he he has to wear two pairs of socks because his feet stink so much? Did you know that he still wets the bed and she like points to the sheet and there's like pee stains on it. And Vicky Valancourt's taking it all in stride. She's like, men are supposed to have stinky feet. Like, deputy dog is a sexy character and like that's fine i don't care if he pees his bed she's just like whatever you can throw at me like bitch you're challenging me and i ain't gonna be challenged exactly at this point doesn't matter what she says i'm gonna try and counter it yeah exactly whatever you can throw at me like i can take it but i like your son so this is what you're gonna have to fucking deal with it and bobby's just overwhelmed at this like cat fight that's essentially happening over him and the mama just like gets up and leaves it's like you know she kind of yells at vicky like I don't think very highly of you or your uh, witchcraft or whatever. And Bobby get in, Bobby get in here before she puts a spell on you and all this stuff. And you know, Bobby, who's caught in a sticky situation, pretty much between the woman he likes and his mama, sides with his mama because he's a simple guy and he can't go against his mama. That's his mom. Like it's where he lives. It's all these things. Most so, important person in his life. So he tells Vicky, I'm sorry, and then follows his mom inside. And Vicky's just like, well, okay, whatever the fuck, and walks away. You know, more montage of football, the Mud Dogs, which is their the SCLSU team, they're doing really, really well. They keep winning, they keep winning, they keep winning. The montage kind of stops at the final game before what would be the championship. Like, they're headed towards the championship, but they there's this, like, last game they have to win to make sure that, they're, that they go. And they're all nervous. They're, you know, the game scores tied up and Bobby goes in and he wins the game for them. They find out, okay, sweet. You guys are going to the bourbon bowl. It's supposed to be one of the like big prestigious, things. prestigious bowl games, similar to like the Rose bowl, the orange bowl, all these different things. It's meant to be like that. But the way that it plays in the movie is more that it's like this 
inter-Louisiana sports thing because it ends up being the SCLSU Mud Dogs versus the University of Louisiana, which was his old team. So it's two Louisiana teams at this Bourbon Bowl, which is essentially a Louisiana like bowl game. So that's what's going to happen. So they have this big pep rally, like getting ready to go into this bourbon bowl. And, you know, the whole town shows up of Jackson's Bayou. Everyone's like super excited. Mud dogs are going to win. The team's there, you know, the band's there, the cheerleaders are there, everyone's there. And they're giving speeches, you know, Coach Klein gives a little speech and then the water boy gives a little speech and he's like, you know, thank you guys. We're, you know, we're going to do good. And then a bus rolls up to interrupt the party. And off of the bus comes Red Bowu and the University of Louisiana football team. Oh, no. So Coach Red Bowu comes up and interrupts this whole thing. First, the super asshole player that we met at the beginning of the, the movie is just like talking shit and yelling over the crowd, yelling at Bobby Boucher. And then Vicky Valancourt pulls a knife on this super asshole for talking shit on her man, basically holds a knife to his throat and is like, bitch, you better shut up. I will cut you. I will cut you. Then Red Bowie, the coach, cuts in and is like, now, 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 let's not get violent out here. But here's the deal. You, Bobby... I found this out and he pulls out these papers and he's like, these are forged transcripts from this high school that doesn't exist that you said you went to basically, mm-hmm. you know, cause you have to have trans high school transcripts to go to college. Right. And Bobby's just like, what? Like, I don't, what? Understand. Yeah. <laughs> and then Red's like, and you young lady, you pulled a knife on my star player and calls the cop up and she gets taken away, arrested. Red is like, so Bobby, you can't play in the bourbon bowl. Sorry about it. Good luck to you, mud dogs and leaves. Now the team is super crestfallen and looking at Bobby, like Bobby, you fake your own transcripts. Like what the fuck, dude, you fucked us. Like we need you to win and you're, you fucked us. So they all turn on him instantly. The crowd all turns on him instantly. And they're like, what the fuck, dude? No. So he leaves Everyone has kind of just been super fucked up to him and he leaves. He goes to Coach Klein's office and he finds Coach Klein in there because Coach Klein had slipped away. And Bobby's asking him, you know, where did you go? Why did you leave? All these things. And we find out Coach Klein's backstory here. And we find out that Coach Klein used to be an incredible football coach. He used to win all sorts of championships at the University of Louisiana with Red Bowie. He was the assistant coach and the playwriter. And he had this green notebook that he wrote all of his wonderful plays in. Red Bowie stole that notebook in the past and then fired Coach Klein because he didn't need him anymore. And then Coach Klein basically suffered a mental breakdown and has been dealing with this mental issue since that moment. He hasn't been able to write plays. The game has been all over for him. He's not the football great that he once was, basically. And Bobby's like, you know, you have to stand up to Red Bowie. You got to show him, you know, that you have changed. And I just don't understand how this, like, situation happened with my transcripts. Like, I was homeschooled. I don't understand. And Coach Klein's like, I did it. I faked those transcripts. Like, I needed you on the team and all these different things. 
And the next day, Coach Klein, he like gets off the phone with somebody and he talks to Bobby and he's like, so I figured this out. The school board of whatever is going to give you this, essentially the high school exit exam. And if you pass this high school exit exam, it qualifies you to be in college. Like you'll be allowed to play in the bourbon bowl. Right. Bobby's like, okay, cool. Let's do it. Right. So Bobby goes home and he starts studying for this. Trying to get his GED basically. Yeah. For his GED basically. So Bobby goes home and he starts studying and he's reading and his mama is like, I don't remember what she's doing, but she's being loud. She's just talking. I think. Yeah. She's just talking and talking and talking. And Bobby is just like, mom, can you be quiet? Like I need to read. And he's like, well, what are you reading for? And blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, I need to study for this test so that I can play foot. Oops. Ball. And he lets out the secret that he had been playing football. And his mom kind of lays into him. Like, you've been playing foosball behind my back, Bobby. Like, all these different things. And gets super mad at him. And Bobby just breaks. And he's like, I play football because I like football. I have friends. I go to school because I like school. And I like Vicky Valancourt too. And she showed me her boobies and I like them too. And like all this, this, this whole. <laughs> I totally forgot about that scene until right now. One of the purest scenes that has ever been filmed in yeah. cinema. Amazing. Yeah. So he basically stands up to his mom and is just like, I'm not a child anymore. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to play football. I want to go to school. I want to be with Vicky and you can't stop me essentially. And the mom's like, well, fine. And walks away. The next day he goes to take this exit exam and he finishes the test. Vicky shows up in the beginning of the test and she's holding a sign and it says, do you want me to kill them? Oh no. (laughs) Cause she's like, if I just kill the proctor, like and you won't have to take this test, it'll be fine. Exactly. But he's like, no, it's okay. I can do this. So he takes the test. And as soon as he's leaving the building after his test is done, a cop rolls up and Vicky's like, tell them I was with you from two to four today. Like that's it. Or yesterday or whatever. She's like, cover for me. (laughs) I'm telling you she's she's bad. But The cop rolls up and he's like, Bobby, your mom has been taken to the hospital. You need to come with me. So they go to the hospital and they can't figure out what's wrong with his mom, but she's like essentially in a coma, just like knocked the fuck out. And Bobby is like hurt that he can't be in the bourbon bowl. He can't, you know, because he's got to take care of his mama, but he also feels like this is all his fault. Like he blew up on his mom the other day about the football thing. And now she's in the hospital unconscious, like doing this whole, you know, he feels like it's all his fault. Right. He can't do anything to help her. He fixes up the room. So it looks just like their house. You know, he adds curtains and he brings their pet donkey and all these different things. It's absurd. But, you know, he wants it to feel like home so that when mama wakes up, she feels like she's at home. I think a couple of nights go by and it's New Year's Eve. You can hear the like the countdown happening in the hospital, like the nurses or whatever. And then you hear this other sound and you hear Bobby, Bobby or Waterboy, Waterboy, Waterboy. Vicky has gone around to all these townsfolk and explained the situation. Bobby passed his test. He could play. 
we right. need him to play, but his mom is in the hospital. We need all the fans to kind of make Bobby realize that he can still play. He should play even though mom is in the hospital. Right. So this huge gathering happens in the parking lot below where mama's window is. And they're explaining like the goofy looking guy is like, you know, I'm not a good looking man, but you playing football, you know, you open the doors for people like me made it made me realize that I can be more than I am and all these different things because Bobby is for all intents and purposes, an awkward looking dude. Like this is not typical Adam Sandler. Like he's he's tweaking his face his hair is super goofy he's tweaking his face and also in terms of his character it's very obviously a character that is meant to portray somebody who has a either a genetic disorder or a mental disorder you know definitely genetic as we will soon find out it's you i was to say it's usually what people would consider down syndrome like that's what i always assumed it's it's not quite as dramatic yeah, it was Down syndrome, I would say, but it is what I take it as being is because they're in Louisiana, deep in the South. Yeah, the product of inbreeding. Got many, it. Many, many years of inbreeding. Um, just not Thanks. all there mentally. Yeah, is what it seems. But as the sh- as the movie progresses and as Bobby goes to school, we learn he is a smart man. Yeah, he- I was gonna say I remember. I remember watching it and remember watching him, you know, I can't remember specifics of it, but I remember the feeling of watching him and realizing like, oh, he can do this. Like, it's not just that he's good at football, but he's not good at anything else. It's funny when you watch him in his first ever class, but that's just, it's funny because it's his first ever class. You then watch and when they're having those montages, the other thing that you're watching with the montages of football is you're watching montages of him actually proving like, yeah, I'm I'm a normal dude. I just yeah. so happen to have a strange thing about me, but I am still intelligent. I can yeah. still be a student. I, you know, like I, I can get this. I've just never been given the chance. Yeah. So Vicky yells to Bobby and basically explains, you know, all of these people showed up for you, Bobby. Like no one's here for anything but you. We, we need you. This town loves you. This town needs you. Yes. Everyone reacted crazy the other day, but they were just hurt. Like, you know, we need you. And Bobby basically responds with that's sweet that you need me, but my mama needs me more. And if she could hear you, that would be sweet, but she can't because she's unconscious. And he just like closes the window and is like, I can't. Kathy Bates laying in bed, like has one eye open. She's been listening this whole time. She has one eye open. And when Bobby closes the window, she quickly shuts her eyes and is like, well, damn, like this whole fucking town cares about Bobby. Like, like I have to let him play. Clearly this is something that's now. Yeah. This is bigger than me. So the next morning, Bobby wakes up in his cha- in the chair in his mom's hospital room and his mom, mama, is sitting up on the bed and she's like getting her things together, putting together her purse. And Bobby's like, oh my gosh, mama, you're okay. Like, I'm so happy. Everything's fine. And blah, 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 blah. And he apologizes for the fight. He's like, mama, I'm sorry. I'm such a dummy. Like, I shouldn't have had this big, you know, I shouldn't have gotten you all worked up I caused you to be in the hospital you know he's pouring himself out all of these feelings he's been having of guilt that his mom's in the hospital 
So Bobby's mom is like, no, Bobby, stop. You're not the dummy. I'm the dummy for not realizing how important this is to you, how important this is to the school, how important this is to everybody. And she shares with him why she has been so overprotective about him. And she opens up this notebook thing that she has. And the first page has this picture of her and this beautiful, gorgeous looking dude. And Bobby's like, is that my daddy? He said, no, this was this guy. He was before your dad and blah, 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 blah. That, but that was just lust. That wasn't love. And he tur- she turns the page and we see Bobby's dad. And he's like cross-eyed and short and like overweight and just like awkward looking. You're understanding where Bobby gets all right. his The resemblance awkward. is very obvious. Yeah. yeah, because Mama is normal. Like, she's very, very intelligent, very, you know. But we're seeing this. She hands Bobby this notebook and has him read these letters from his daddy. And the first letter is basically, Dear Helen. And Bobby's like, who's Helen? It's like, that's my first name, Bobby. Like, that's me. Yeah. That's me. <laughs> I'm your mama. Like, my name is Helen. Right. <laughs> and Bobby's like, oh, okay. So, dear Helen, New Orleans is a big and beautiful city. I have leads on a job, but I don't have any money yet. I'll send money as soon as I can. Love, Robert. Go to the next one. And he's like, here's some money. New Orleans is great. It's, you know, all of these different things. And I can't wait to see you, Robert. Then he goes to the third one. And rather than saying, dear Helen, at the top, it says, to whom it may concern. This will be the last letter that I send you. New Orleans is beautiful and is filled with too many temptations, something about temptations. And uh, I've fallen in love with a voodoo woman named Phyllis. Ciao, Roberto. And Bobby's like, who the fuck is Roberto? And he's like, that's your daddy. He changed his name when he left me. Right. (laughs) And she goes on to explain to Bobby, like, I have kept you buy me because I don't think I can handle lose. I couldn't lose you. Like I lost him. I needed you with me. You know, I was pregnant at the time when he was due, when this happened and it was just horrible, you know, and we found out earlier in the movie that she fed him these lies about his dad for years and years and years that his dad was in the peace corps and like went on a mission in the desert and died from dehydration which is why Bobby became a water boy. Oh my God. So now we're learning the truth about his dad. He just sucked and left his mom. And, you know, Bobby basically relays that he would never, he's not going to leave his mama. You know, he's not trying to hurt her. He's not trying to do these things. Moment. And then his mom's like, well, we need to get you to the bourbon bowl. I overheard what was happening. Right. And we need to get you there. And he's like, well, okay, but I don't know that we'll make it in time. So they go to their house on the bayou and Vicky meets them there. And Vicky is fixing up their fan boat. I don't, I don't know what those things are specifically called, but they're really only seen on like the bayou in okay. Louisiana, Florida. Like <laughs> it's just like a small boat oh, with oh. a huge ass fan on the back that yeah. like propuls, propulsions you through the fucking water. So Vicky like fixes it up so it'll go super duper fast. Uh, Mama's getting ready to drive. Vicky jumps on. Bobby runs up. He's got his football 
just his jersey on. He's ready to go. They get on, they fucking just like book it down the bayou. They're going like 140 across the fucking bayou. <laughs> so while Bobby and Mama and Vicky are heading towards the Bourbon Bowl, the Bourbon Bowl has already started. Okay. The mud dogs are getting slaughtered by the University of Louisiana. Okay. Red Bowyu has got his green notebook that he stole from Coach Klein many years ago and knows exactly what plays he's going to play. He knows exactly the things that are going to happen. So Red Bowyu is just crushing it. The team is getting shit on. And, you know, the score is like, I don't know, 20 to nothing, essentially. Then it's halftime and Bobby shows up at halftime. In the locker room, the team is sitting around and they're reminiscing like, fuck, this game sucks. Remember that time that Bobby did this and this crazy thing happened? And then remember the time Bobby did this? Remember the time Bobby did this? And then Bobby walks into the locker room and he's like, remember that time Bobby Boucher popped up and then halftime of the Bourbon Bowl and the Mud Dogs went in to win it all? And magically oh. of course team morale restored everyone's like hell yeah bobby's back like we're full team we're ready to go so they go out onto the field and they're ready to play now bobby realizes that coach klein is acting scared and different like yeah. more closely resembling the coach klein from the beginning of the movie rather than the coach yeah, klein saw during that breakdown yeah more similar to that than he had been at the time that Bobby had last seen him like they had a winning season they were doing really good you know coach Klein was more aware and sure of himself at that point right so Bobby kind of talks through it with coach Klein is it like is it coach Boo that is doing it to you like you need to do the same thing that you taught me visualize something that does not scare you at all and imagine that as being red Boo. So Coach Klein tries it, and the first thing he imagines is a baby. So Red <laughs> Bowyu, the man, is standing there on the other opposite sideline with the head of a baby, and Coach nice. Klein just like, <laughs> like just making stupid faces at him, and he's like, "Okay, good. I'm snapped out of it. I don't give a fuck about Red Bowyu. Like, let's win this." Yes. He's like, okay, Red Bull, you hold no power on me. Like, that's fine. I saw him do that stupid shit. Um, let's go. Let's go. Oh. So they start playing and Bobby is bringing the score back. He's hurting all these players, not giving a fuck. And the Mud Dogs are actually doing really well. They're bringing back their score from just this horrible deficit, right? Meanwhile, they've got announcers down at the stadium talking to Vicky Valancourt, who has taken over as Waterboy. She's kind of trying to do Bobby's job because Bobby's clearly busy. That's and so one of the announcers asks her, you know, what do you think? How do you think the the Mud Dogs are going to do? And what do you, you know, what's your prediction for the game? And she says, Mud Dogs are going to win uh, 30 to 27. And the guy's like, well, how did you come across that guess? And Vicky gets all indignant and is like, guess? That ain't no guess. That's what it's going to be. I, I fucking looked at the stars, bitch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, he, but he doesn't know that. But we all know that as the audience. She's, you know, right. super into the stars and all of the star signs and all this bullshit. So she thinks she's witchy. 
So the team's doing well, and Red decides he's going to change it up. He switches up his players a bit and puts, you know, part of his defensive line on his offensive line to kind of make it harder for the Mud Dogs to win. And Coach Klein's like, okay, well, I can do the same thing. And he moves Bobby around to different positions so that the score is nearly tied. It's 24 to 27. And the anchor who had asked Vicky Valancourt, like, looks over at Vicky, like, fuck, like, that's what it's going to be. Like, (laughs) she was right. So the game continues on. They pull this trick play that Coach Klein had created himself on the sidelines. He was like writing out the play that they had never seen before. And this crazy fucking like triple flea flicker happens where they're just pitching the ball back and back and back. And then Bobby like ends up throwing the ball, ends up being the quarterback for the play and throws it all the way to Key, who was the main guy who was being a dick to him. And... That's awesome. And they win. That's amazing. 30 to 27. Fuck yeah. Yes. So Bobby is the MVP that, you know, they ask him all these things. He's like, I love my mama. You know, what are you doing at the end of the game? You know, the typical, like, I'm going to Disneyland. I'm going to Disneyland. He says, I love my mama. That's it. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, And then the game ends and, you know, everything's good. The next scene, the very end of this movie is at a wedding chapel. It's got all of the team dressed up to the nines. You know, they're all in their suits and Bobby and Vicky come out down the steps. You know, clearly they just got married. Everyone's super excited. They go to get on Bobby's tractor to leave and this busted ass car rolls up. And this dude walks out and it's Bobby's dad, Roberto. And he starts talking to Bobby and like, hey, you know, I could be your manager, your coach, just like Tiger Woods and his daddy, like forget Mm -hmm. going to college, like you should go to the NFL. And Bobby's like, no, I want to go to school. I want to finish my degree. And Bobby's like, don't be a dummy, dummy, like go to the NFL. We could make so much money and blah, 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 blah. And then Kathy Bates character, mama gets fucking mad because Roberto just popped up and she fucking tackles the shit out of him. Yes. And it's like, okay, go have fun on your honeymoon, Bobby. The end. Drive off into the sunset. And that's the end of the movie. Amaze. Yeah. Uh, just a quick addition. At the end of the movie, when they're riding off on the lawnmower, uh, I love you more today than yesterday. It's a version by Goldfinger. It's really good. It's really, oh, yeah. Really, really the, oh, the soundtrack to this movie is fucking yeah. fantastic. It, I haven't even touched on that yeah, at all. It, I, I didn't know if you talked about me. No. It's so good. Oh, no. So good. But um, the movie as a whole does have some slight similarities to Street Carning Desire in the notion of emotional abuse yeah there is a lot of emotional and mental abuse happening in this movie you know he's constantly just abused by his mom with the best of intentions his mom is not meaning to do these things but is definitely keeping him at this like childlike level of innocence that is not necessary for a grown-ass man of 31 And then, of course, the mental and physical abuse he received from all of the football players from both of the teams that he served just constantly. Which is which is literally point blank origin and toxic masculinity, because 
he's not the typical uh you know jock dude that is all dude bro and that you know can't fucking pound a keg in one drink or whatever he obviously has to be made fun of and has to be uh you know targeted in addition to the um dis like the ableism of this which i'll get into later because i want to make sure that you get to say all your shit before i tune in but so we do see um the physical manifestation of this problem throughout this movie and i think it does it in a really interesting and hilarious way so coach klein is very adamant you know visualize and attack visualize and attack that's his thing that's his mantra to bobby like this is what you got to do you know if you're going to be this great tackling machine basically and bobby takes that to heart and throughout the movie we see him picturing the heads of all of these different people who have wronged him throughout the movie on these different players that he's set to tackle. So even if the player in front of him has not actually said anything bad to him, he's imagining, you know, these players from the old team, these players from the new team who have just been saying mean things to him, and it's his fuel to just take it out. So at one point, the quarterback for the Mud Dogs calls him a needle dick, and he just keeps... At one point, one of the he's looking across at the character that he's meant to tackle, and he's just hears him saying "needle dick, needle dick, needle" like over and over and over in like a chant. Needle dick, needle dick, needle dick. Yeah, while they're while they're like setting the hike, and then he hikes the ball, and Bobby just like fucking goes for it and just knocks him out. And this same physical manifestation happens not just to Bobby, but it also happens to Derek in the Bourbon Bowl. Um, he visualizes and attacks this field goal that he has to hit in the bourbon bowl, where he imagines that the ball is a Ku Klux Klan member. Like it's a face in a mask, in a Ku Klux Klan hood. And he just kicks the shit out of it. Straight through the uprights for sure. So like Sam mentioned earlier, there is a classic line where Henry Winkler says water sucks. There's like a song. It It really, really really sucks. sucks. Water Water sucks. sucks. It It really, really sucks. Yes. Gatorade. (laughs) Exactly. Water sucks. Gatorade is better. (laughs) So in the bourbon bowl, you know, in between the plays of the bourbon bowl, Bobby's about to go back on the field and coach Klein turns, like pulls him and turns to him and says, Bobby, water sucks. Gatorade is better. And Bobby's just like, what? What? How dare you, sir? What? Sir, good and day. Like, I said good day. Yeah. And Coach <laughs> just like, now use it on the field. And he like pushes him out into the field. And then when Bobby goes out and is sitting in that set waiting for the, the hike, the whole other team gets the heads of Coach Klein of Henry Winkler. And they're singing this song like, water sucks. It really, really sucks. And it's hilarious, but also like, makes complete sense as to right. why he would go after these characters sure. so it's fucking great i highly recommend watching the water boy if you like adam sandler or football or just comedy in general it's fucking great and if you don't like those things i'd stay away from it because you're going to be disappointed because that's all it is it's hilarious all right lay in so, let us let us into it 
So the biggest thing about this, and this is actually something that I've wanted to say about a couple of like movies that we've covered too, but not just movies, you know, like the stuff that I've covered as well. I can't think of something specific at the moment because I'm drunk. Spoiler alert. That's kind of the premise of the show. Here's the thing, especially when it comes to the movies, like the whole premise of our show is we're covering, you know, books, booze, and B movies. And you know, when Katie and I were talking about like starting this podcast, there wasn't a whole lot of discussion at the very beginning. But when we were starting to like, um, you know, record like some of the first episodes, we were talking about it while we were recording those and kind of like, you know, tackling the beast of like what we really wanted this to be and covering movies that were not the elite of the move of cinema you know not on oscar winners exactly um things that are maybe even popular sometimes but sometimes maybe even not popular things that maybe even are problematic you know what i'm saying there is a lot of criticism for instance um the reason that i am going to bring this up here in particular is because i've been thinking about this for a while but it's a perfect time to bring this up because we're covering an adam sandler movie today um because adam sandler is almost kind of like the epitome of this issue of the idea that if we're covering like a maybe a problematic piece that we in any sort of way endorse any of its problematic qualities and I just want to first of the things that I want to say say that just because we're covering something that is problematic obviously doesn't mean that we condone or support any of the problematic aspects of the things that we are covering Um, that should be I hope something you know cross finger I hope is something that you guys understand but I just want to reiterate that verbally so that we can all hear it. Now, past that, the reason that we cover this type of stuff anyway, even if there is stuff that is problematic in it, because that's the next thing, uh, you know, the the criticism of, well, if it is problematic and it is something that has like all of those sort of like bad aspects to it, why would you want to talk about it? Why would you want to sort of boost it and, you know, even make a podcast of it or, you know, any of the art, if you're, you know, an artistic person anyway, like all of that stuff, why would you want to focus on that if it has something that's problematic to it? Well, there, there's a twofold aspect to that. One is that problematic art is important art for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that it shows us what is and is not problematic for society. You know, what is and is not acceptable. So bringing those things up so that we can talk about those, the parts of them that are not acceptable is important because if we don't do that, then they just sit there and they are ripe with people who can then try and hold them up to deny the problematic aspects of it. And we, you know, in bringing them up can showcase both the important things about that piece of art as well as the problematic aspects and make it 
something that enriches society rather than something that we ignore because we're too afraid of it only so that problematic people can highlight it and you know use it to try and purport or you know uh, support prop the problematic aspects of it but the other reason is is that a lot of things especially so like I don't know how much Katie like is in this like I know she's gotten <laughs> a little more um like she's sort of started like being on social media a little bit more lately but she's definitely not like all up on it especially like in fandoms and stuff like I've been <laughs> in the last like decade or so and there's a there's a big um controversy in particular right now about the idea of anything that is problematic or could be problematic, particularly stuff that is an ism category. So a, a racism category, an ableism category, um, a misogynist, like a misogynist category, you know, an anti-feminist category, all yeah. of those like sort of ism things or phobia things like queer phobic stuff. If it has any, even a hint of that kind of stuff, then it shouldn't exist because of the fact that it has that aspect of it. Oh yeah. And the that we should culture. try and eradicate, eradicate it. And the problem with that is that when you erase those kinds of things in society, you take away the ability of coming generations to be able to recognize those things as problematic to be able to navigate their society with those real things that exist in real life as problematic issues. If they don't learn about this kind of stuff in their art, which is fundamentally essentially how human beings sort of, uh, you know, if we had a study, <laughs> if we had a way to study how to be a good human, that's what art is. It's like, you know, our textbook for humanity uh, of being a good human or a not good human, that's what art is. So if you take away all of the problematic shit in art and only have shit that is quote unquote okay to show, you take away people's ability to be able to identify those bad things about humanity. You, you take away their ability to differentiate between when those bad things are happening versus when the good things are happening. Because yeah. we all know humanity is very complex. And, you know, they're all of us, all people are simultaneously good people and assholes all at the same time. Yeah. Every human has the capacity to be a good person and every human has the capacity to be a shit person. Yeah. Simultaneously all the time. If you try and erase what shit, what shit people do and create shit in the world, you take away people's ability to be able to fight against those real issues in reality. Especially, I wanted to bring this up and it kind of like became perfect when she, when Katie decided to do like an Adam Sandler thing, um, because he's almost like a quintessential, I mean, I couldn't have picked a better sort of video to like want to like make this point on. Adam Sandler in particular is a perfect example of what many people in our day and age, like right now, would consider very problematic. If yeah. you look at Waterboy, there is 
problems out the fucking yin yang there you know his entire character is based on essentially what is probably down syndrome if not specifically down syndrome probably uh, you know an amalgamation of genetic disorders or genetic disabilities and reading yeah and it's very understandable and very valid for sure to see that and be upset that those issues are being made the brunt of jokes. And I want to state for the record that at any point when we cover shit that is problematic like this, even if we're acknowledging the positive aspects of a piece of art, we are not advocating for the problematic aspects of it. We are not saying that those problematic aspects are okay. We're never saying that, but what we are doing is we are trying to help people see um, in these works that we choose to cover the problematic aspects that we think should absolutely be considered as well as the positive things that you can take away from those works of art because ultimately those works of art exist. They're going to be out there and humanity essentially is just never going to erase that type of stuff because if you erase Waterboy, uh, you know, an equivalent of Waterboy is just gonna pop up 30 years from now because that's just the nature of humanity. Not to say that it's futile to fight against problematic stuff, but that the best way to fight against it is not to erase it, but to make sure that when we see it, we can, we can identify the problematic aspects of it, we, but we can also take away the good things from it yeah. and build upon our society in goodness. Yes. Um, so, you know, obviously when we're talking about the water boy, you know, what is not cool about it is like, unfortunately, that a big aspect of a lot of the jokes in it is that this, you know, this poor main character is the brunt of a lot of jokes because yeah. he's quote unquote he's, slow. He's simple. Yeah, exactly. However, in a positive way to be able to take away from this movie, uh, there is a, there's an old saying, especially in like literary circles where the idea is um, like everything is boiled down to two, to a binary in terms of stories and the binaries can vary, but one of the binaries is um, it's a tragedy or a comedy and a tragedy, everyone dies and a comedy, someone gets married. And <laughs> so like comedies are meant to be positive. Comedies are meant to be okay your protagonist is your protagonist for a reason because they're a good person because everything that happens at the end is something that they've earned that they that they even if they may not deserve it that it is it is kind of ultimately functioning in a way that serves a good moral purpose and you see in the water boy that type of ending for this comedy Yes, unfortunately, there's a lot of very problematic aspects associated with the jokes in this movie, but the end of the movie is all about all of the characters that have really problematic aspects associated with them are all people who defy those expectations on their identities and succeed 
in defiance of those expectations and succeed in defiance of what people generally assume about them. And living very valid, normal, awesome lives as normal, awesome people. They are just normal, awesome people that are also, you know, have a genetic disorder when it comes to Bobby or, you know, someone who has a proclivity for sort of criminal activity that Vicky does or someone who was abused and, you know, victimized in a relationship and then takes that victimization out on their child, like mama, you know, all of those aspects that all of the people that have those bad things associated with them win in the end of this movie. Yeah. You know, the coach, you know, beats the person who essentially victimizes them and, you know, sent them into a spiraling depression that, you know, fucked their entire life up. He wins at the end. Uh, Bobby, is a person who was put at a disadvantage in society for numerous reasons. Not the, not even the least of which is that his mom keeps him sheltered. He's put in that position because everyone underestimates him. Everyone looks at him and sees a simple dude and sees someone who can't be intelligent, someone who is a quote unquote arsler. I, you know, I can't even say the word, but that's exactly what people would have said when that movie came out. Oh yeah, that was common slang back then. Very common back then. And he defies every expectation of what the quote-unquote quintessential, you know, our slur person was back then. He defies every single one of those expectations that he can't function in regular society, that he can't meet the standards of regular society that he can't be happy or be productive in a regular society that other people won't find him valid won't like him won't be able to see his personality or be able to connect with him as a person whether romantically or in friendship wise all of those things are defied like 1000% in this movie that's what Katie and I want to kind of like highlight when we cover problematic things. You know, we don't want to shy away from the problematic aspects of it, but we are always going to try and essentially highlight the better things about it that you can take away. Because at this point, that's what we need. That That's just what we need. Yeah. As a society, we just need to be able to look at our history, see the bad shit and recognize it as bad, but then recognize the good things that we can find from it and what we can build upon from those bad things. Like, you know, if Bobby Boucher was a real person, I would love to be his friend, you know, (laughs) like I would love to have him as a friend I would love to know him I'd love to know Vicky I you know like sorry I'm just ranting now at this point because I'm drunk as fuck but the moral of it is that it's supposed to not be a a black and white issue yeah art especially good art whether or not it's successful art or not successful art in terms of popularity 
all art is gray. And that's what Katie and I are here for. We're here to navigate you through the gray, show you the shit that is absolutely problematic, not shy away from it, but also show you the, the good aspects about something that you can take away, yes. that it's very valid to enjoy those good aspects as long as you also don't ignore the problematic aspects. The yeah. goal is to be able to balance both of those knowledges simultaneously. Yeah, you have to be very aware. Especially if you're what, specifically in comedy, I mean, it's bad across the board. Yeah. Um, it can be bad across the board, but specifically in comedy, um, you have to be very aware of the time that yeah. the comedy that you're watching took place and listen with a grain of salt. It's not just, oh, cancel this because he said, you know, that guy was the R word or whatever, you know, it's not that. It's you need to be paying attention to the time right. that- Everything associated with yeah, it. Yeah, you know, I'm not trying to justify- No. At all of any of these- you know, horrible words that people use or horrible jokes that people have been telling for years and years. But but you can see it even now. Like if you watched The Waterboy, like I yeah. did, you know, from 1998 and then went on and watched a comedy from now. last year, a couple of years ago, 2019, you will notice a distinct change Entirely in the language different. that they use and the way tone, that they- everything. The tone, the way that they talk about different things because we as a society have changed. We've, our views on things have grown. We've realized that these things are wrong and we don't say them anymore. We don't do them anymore because they are wrong. At the time that the thing took place, that, that whatever it is happened, it wasn't viewed in the same way as it is now and- that's just art. Like it's across it, exactly. the board. Like it's the same as like, I can't remember if you mentioned this in one that has already, <laughs> that has already been posted in terms of for yeah. the podcast right now or not, or if it's one that is still in um, editing. But when you watched, for instance, Lone Star State of Mind and Lone Star State of Mind is like one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. And Lone Star State of Mind was hard for you to enjoy because you hadn't watched it upon its like inception, like when it was yeah. actually put out. So for you, the only thing you could see was all of the problematic aspects yes. of it yes. because you you hadn't enjoyed it in the time frame that it had been put out. Yeah. Whereas I was someone who consumed it right when it had come out. So for me, it holds that nostalgic value. Yeah. And, you know, it would be like you refusing to cover Lone Star State of Mind because of those problematic aspects. Well, you would be able to cover it, but what would happen is you just wouldn't ignore the problematic aspects. Yeah, You would make sure that you highlighted the problematic aspects of it as well as the things about it that make it a, you know, a relatable piece of art or uh, you know, a piece of art that speaks to a certain sort of mentality in society or, you know, a certain era or way that people thought about things and did things. Yeah, I completely agree. You have to take art with a grain of salt and think about the time that it was done. Just like fucking Streetcar Named Desire. Like, yes, like I was describing a little while ago, like there should be a remake made, modernized, yeah 
changed to fit what is today's stuff because watching it today or yeah seeing it today it does not hold the same right it doesn't have the same effects it's just like obnoxious and annoying that all of these different things are happening it's hard to see it for what it was meant to be seen as because we're not in the same place as we were so and that's actually that it highlights the importance of like good teachers versus bad teachers but I will literally not get on that soapbox because if I do we will yeah that'll be a 75 minute yeah for the next two hours at least which I just (laughs) vehemently oppose but yeah all right seven word synopsis okay so a streetcar named desire oh god i have one for streetcar right now ready to go oh okay streetcar named desire southern bells endure mental and physical abuse there you go that is the whole fucking plot covered (laughs) um shitty people do shitty things and suffer accurate (laughs) there we go um all right water water boy simple man becomes college football star player (laughs) when you have problems visualize and attack i love it that's fantastic (laughs) it fits in so well (laughs) okay so this has been real lit we are so happy that you joined us on this uh southern escapade that we took you on today huge shout out to our artist susan dorda thank you so much for our beautiful artwork you can check her out at susandorta.com that's s-u-s-a-n-d-o-r-t-a.com um of course you can find us all over the social medias we are on twitter at allentown pod you can find us on facebook at allentown presents you can email us at allentown presents at gmail.com and of course we will be back again in a few weeks with another episode thank you again so much for listening we love you guys love you people bye